0: Ah, there you are. I seem to have been caught in this time, Eddie, as punishment for watching all six episodes of Flux. Though really, several weeks of listening only to Doctor in Distress is what I really deserve for inflicting that abomination on my very soul. Happy New Year and welcome to the omni edition of our 2021 Christmas special as the Superman of Doctor Who podcasting once again assemble, almost live, at Dave's recording studio in the great state of Victoria. Due to the devastation, rating-wise, talent-wise... Entertainment-wise, and let's be frank, spiritually, caused to the universe during flux, the dandy, the clown, and the good-looking one will be carrying on without me. But never fear, due to the fact that I have found more of Power of the Daleks than good old Phil, I will be able to push through the time it is and make several unexpected appearances. So what do we have lined up for our loyal listeners? Scream and scream again as we announce our Fan Wank of the Year awards. Listener's discretion recommended. Hint. That which is not dead can eternal lie, but with strange eons, and a cash-loaded contract and a green room loaded with tasty treats, even death may die. And speaking of death, the lads pull the lever and through the trapdoor drops their top three deaths in Doctor Who. No, not the mind probe! Get out your Target books as we wallow, nay luxuriate, in our thoughts as we review some of the classic, and not so classic, adaptations of your favourite television show that were written by authors who never again grace Target books offices. Hint. Those bastards forced me to read Silver Nemesis, so everyone must pay. And finally, an actual serious discussion. As Chris Chibnall sails away on that fabled punt towards greener pastures, we ponder what makes a good producer. Hint. It surely isn't cramming nine episodes of story into six and having characters screaming, Chocolate! into the camera.
1: I'm Dave. I'm Richard. Welcome back hipsters to the slightly delayed annual 42 to Doomsday staff Christmas party. And unlike Noel Clarke and John Barrowman's career, Dave and Richard are back. Back at Camp David, gents. Great to have you both on the program. How are you today?
2: Thanks very much for having us back on, oh, Mark. It's great to be here.
3: Uh, uh, great to see that you're following the Chibnall example. We're now having New Year's specials, not Christmas. <laughs> 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 yes,
1: uh, life again has gotten in the way, so we're slightly delayed. Rob will be making appearances uh, via the time eddy at certain points, so uh, some room Richard screams. Look up there on the scanner! We'll uh, be dropping in with the relevant sections. So the two gents here are helping me out today, so I appreciate you uh, stepping in, and hopefully have a bit of fun along the way. Not looking at the run sheet, but yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely right. So uh, yes, no, that, <laughs> yeah. that's no. no that's well, actually, you just pre-entered
2: the first discussion. Yeah, yes, exactly,
1: exactly. So, as Richard just then highlighted, we are going to be talking about something which might not be pleasant to some of us. We're going to talk about flux. Now, this is a medical condition. No, it's not. But we're, going to t- <laughs> we're actually going to talk about the uh, the season that's just been. Dave, we know has seen it because he's been reviewing it regularly on the Doctor Who show. I surprised everybody by saying I did watch it. All of it. Yes, oh. I know, and Richard?
2: No, the end. No, <laughs> uh, no I watched. Uh, I have watched the first two. That's enough. It was very much a case of what's all that about, and I don't know whether I'll bother watching the other four. Maybe, no. maybe the next six, few minutes'
3: it. discussion will, will inspire you.
1: Or put the
2: final nail in the coffin.
1: Well, look, it's hopefully David I point of view is might steer you in direction of either watching it or sticking head down the toilet.
3: Mark, this is the first time in how many series you've watched the whole scene?
1: Since about 1855,
3: <laughs> I think. Uh, uh, I
1: think...
3: Uh, did you attend the Capaldi's from end to end?
1: Yes, yeah, I did. I watched uh, yeah. Twice Upon a Time, and that was when the nails in the coffin were going, <clears throat> and when I watched the first six or four episodes of Chippers Era. That really, yeah, it put me on a bit of a Debbie Downer. So, look, I thought we're look, setting the tone early, folks. Exactly. So, look, I agree. I've sort of been a bit down on the whole thing the last couple of years. So I thought, come on, Mark, it's a new series, it has an interesting concept, allegedly. Let's give it a go. And of course, the series was in a shorter duration. Only so six weeks. It's only six weeks, and I thought, look, as a test to myself, let's just get through it and watch it sober. Let's go with the uh, good bit, shall we? At the beginning, it was only six episodes. Uh, each episode lasts less than an hour. <laughs> I'm being serious here. John Bishop I thought was really good. I quite like John Bishop. He has actually been pretty good. In the yeah. two I've watched, look, he, yeah. he was he was fun. Oh, yeah. I'm not
3: quite sure what his character was.
1: No, no, there's he. But I did like having him there. <laughs> the incidental music, the score, um, really I, I do like. <laughs> we can never get his name right or just don't remember it. But he's certainly a vast improvement on uh, Muzak Gold. Um, the War of the Sontarans, Village of the Angels, I thought actually pretty good. Yep. Neil from In Between turned up. He <laughs> did, <you? laughs> he did, and all now need is Simon and Will, and basically that will be the In Betweeners reunited because they had Jay uh, was on that. Uh, was it orphan. I never yeah. watched that, unfortunately, so yes. I it was a great shame. And
3: we've had the, uh, the Headmaster. Oh, we have Is too, he, yes. Um, Greg well, yes.
1: Greg Davies, yes. Greg oh. Davies, yeah. He's very funny, actually. I thought the design of the Sontarans was the best since the Time Warrior. Agreed. And thank God Dan Starkley was uh, sort of moved into the background, as it were. There was no uh, returning of Strax. He was sort of in a different character. But... A different
3: comedy Santaran.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: And they weren't there.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, probably, they probably haven't got out of prison yet, or the anklet bracelets didn't work. <laughs> the Commodore 64 in the background of, uh, I call him, Sabalong Grey Worm Ship. Uh, that guy from um, Game of Thrones, you know, Grey Worms, I just called him Sabalow yeah. Grey Worm, really. Um, the Commodore 64 in the background of a spaceship I thought was pretty good. The Bad. Okay. I'm hoping, Dave, you might be able to explain this for me, actually. I feel like this is one of those Blu-ray things, <laughs> where they all they'll see, what,
3: was it behind the sofa. Yeah. yeah well, is Matthew, <coughs> Matthew Waterhouse, explain what's going on here. Yes, is yes. Isn't
2: there a, like a 15-minute behind-the-scenes video where Chris Juden actually explains the plot?
1: But that means me sitting there actually, A5, <laughs> and actually a the video me watching it, so I'm going to ask Dave, because he's right in front of me. Is that,
2: is that true? I don't know.
1: Okay. Right. So, the whole concept of the flux, right, was created by The, the Division, and Tesla to destroy the Doctor in our universe? I think so. So why did Tesla, let's call her Tesla because I can't remember her name. The Esther Uh, Lady. Yes, that one. Why did she then offer the Doctor to move into the second universe if they want to destroy her in our universe?
3: I'm not sure. Was it to do with she had to accept that she would work on their terms or something? I don't know, I gave up.
1: Uh, every time the cut to Sabalon Grey Worm and his love interest, it just brought the whole thing to a juddering halt. is the man who got on national television, criticised Trial of a Time Lord. Obviously, mm-hmm. Trial of a Time Lord, starts with some action, the trial scenes comes back and forward. He's basically done the same thing with an inconsequential, to me, subplot. And it just basically, you know, the Village of the Angels and, and, the, other st- and the Sontaran story, well, actually going along quite nicely. You're not really selling this to me, Mark,
3: but yeah. I came in with three points to make about Flux, and I'm just going to merge into my second one because you've really touched on it there, Mark. Mm. And my second one was that there is a lot of trial for Time Lord about Flux. Yeah. When you look at it, it's a period of the show where the show's been going for quite a while. Mm. It's under a certain amount of pressure, particularly artistically. Mm. They're looking around for something to do a bit different. Mm. Uh, The Doctor, loved by some people, not loved by others, but certainly a controversial choice for The Doctor Mm. going into their last series. And I think there is a lot of that Trial of a Time Lord vibe of mm. good pieces, good episodes, good stories, good concepts, but just, as you say, just interrupted with the Flux arc that detracts from. Mm. Um, the first point I was going to make is, look, I did enjoy a lot of Flux. I did enjoy tuning in every week and seeing the bits of the puzzle come together mm. and, and wondering, oh, where's this going to go? Where's that going to go? Mm. Unfortunately, look, as a lot of people have said in the last couple of episodes... A lot of the pieces just didn't fall into place, mm. and I think you're right. the The standalone or the more standalone stuff, like In Trial, is the stuff we're going to look back and go, "That was really good." So there are positives in there. There are things I enjoyed. I don't think they now the landing, and I'll save my third point for when you finished your summary. Mark.
1: Yeah, I've only got 18 pages to go, so just Unstimble- you know, just bear with me there. <laughs> I'll, um, just, I'll just go write a small novel. Yeah, just... and I'll be back with you. <laughs> Big finish adventure, that won't take long. <laughs> Certainly not. I've got plenty of ideas. Um, <laughs> I thought Survivors of the Flux and the Vanquishers were really quite tedious episodes. And just when I thought the program couldn't get any worse, Eve of the Daleks comes along, as I call it, shithell bent. Swarm and Azure. Um, I thought it was some sort of skin cream, but apparently. I haven't seen uh, Doctor Who villains at camp since Horns of Nymon. Special mentions must go to the actor who plays Swarm, who was channelling his inner Jim Carrey, I thought, uh, whilst chewing the furniture whilst delivering that performance.
3: It I quite enjoyed. I think the actor knew exactly what he was doing, what show he was in, and just went for it as a camp, Doctor Who villain, and I actually quite enjoyed Swarm and Azure. I'm not quite sure what their motivation was, but no. I thought they were fun performances.
1: And speaking of performances, finally. The Doctor and Yaz, or as I call them, wallpaper and paste. (laughs) Even when you mix them together and slap them on the wall, they're still bland and nondescript as my wallpaper was in
3: 1975.
1: The Laura Ashley Doctor. Wow. I was just watching it and Jodie Whittaker's Doctor has as much presence as a Jehovah's Witness Christmas tree. It was nothing there. There's absolutely nothing there and I, I just think that definitely for me the worst Doctor and Yaz the worst companion combination of a witness and their exit cannot come soon enough for me. That was
3: Mark's <laughs> <crazy> Yes, <laughs> We I mean, want to get that very yes, That was Mark's <laughs> thoughts. Um, well, Richard, over said, to you.
4: Well, as
2: I said, I've only watched two. I thought the Sontaran episode was certainly better than the first one. The mm. first one was very much like what, what is actually happening here? Yeah. Um, the Sontaran one was good. Um, yes, we were saved sort of the comedy Sontaran largely so that was quite good but yeah i based on your summary mark i don't know whether i'm going
1: to brave watching the that's rest just my of them, thoughts. they're just my thoughts yeah. that's why i don't want i don't do reviews of the new series
3: anymore because no looked, yeah.
2: i got uh, i did start watching it i got sidetracked by hawkeye and then uh, oh, by yes. by Book of boba fett so like, oh, yes. I, I may go back to it at some point
3: look mm. at least watch village for the angels i think that's fairly okay. universally been regarded so, as third yeah one fourth one Oh crap! So then yeah. I've got to watch that. It no, up. It's, it's, it's pretty standalone. <laughs> okay, so All you right. can pretty much just tune into that one, much like the Santara one.
1: Because the whole, you know, the angels now are basically agents of the division. I wonder if Moffat was particularly ha- or didn't really have any any say into that, really, because I he think sort he of was
3: just happy to see his creations. Carry on, yeah, and, and get, get those royalty, royalty checks. checks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: although to be honest, I mean, in fairness, I mean, every time the Angels had turned to the series, it'd gone that
3: diminished, diminished. Yes.
1: Except this one actually was a bit of a lift, actually. Well, yeah, and so, well, but
3: again, it just leaned into what made the Angels successful in the first place. Correct. It just did that really, and the really setting
1: liked. and everything like that. was just uh, yeah, um, I see Kevin McNally back in a you know at least a decent Doctor Who story. But yeah, um
3: look, you put Angels at night in an isolated yeah, English village. It worked, and okay. you've got you've got. Oh. Yeah, it worked.
1: And then I watched Eve of the Daleks, based on Dave's recommendation in our chat group, which basically said, well, that was shit. So I said, I've got to watch this then. So uh, I sat down and watched that as well. Uh, on the positive, I actually sat down and watched some new Doctor Who, which I haven't done well,
4: there you go. in so years.
1: You've grown a bit. There's definitely oh. positives there, but there's quite a lot of negatives for me. So I might as well keep going, to be honest. I watched this. the Sea Devils. looks quite interesting, but, I mean, you know. Yeah, I I've seen the trailer. Genuinely... That does look actually pretty good.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, and as somebody who looked, I, I didn't hate... Either the Daleks in the way I have some other modern Who, but I was just utterly, utterly bored by oh, yeah, great. the Daleks. Yeah. Um, certainly not more than I was by, by Flux. I gave it a much lower mark than I gave anything in Flux. Yeah. But regardless, I'm still very excited by Legend of the Sea Devils. I think that could be a really
4: mm. fun,
3: cool story. Speaking of, if mm. I could make the third point I was going to make, yes. so having having said, look, I enjoyed the experience of Flux, mm. I think that there are problems with the arc and that the standlands were better. I don't think I'm particularly Robinson Crusoe, we making those observations. Mm. The big thing that I kind of took out of this, and I'm not going to be quite as harsh as you, Mark, is now that we've seen all three of Jodie Whittaker's st- series as the Doctor, I've just decided I'm not a fan of Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. Yeah. And for a while, I was sort of really waiting for her to break out. I think when you look at a lot of Doctors, McCoy, Davison, um, others, it really takes them to the third season to really nail the. Um, performance. Even Capaldi, as much as I liked him, he got better every year and his third series was by far his best I Yes. And I was waiting to see that in Jodie. And look, she was better here in some ways, but at the end of the day, I just decided watching this, I don't dislike Jodie's Doctor. She's not going to be down the bottom of my list like a couple of others, but she's going to be a lot lower in the list because I'm just not engaged by her Doctor or her performance or her character. Now, as I say, if she's not at the bottom of the list, as, as you know, she may be for you, Mark. Mm. But down in the bottom third, it's a performance you're watching, and it's just there's nothing, Daniel. Yeah, it just comes
1: across as a as a as a David Tennant like again.
3: You know mm. what I mean? And but she... if you were to use words to explain the personality of the thirtieth Doctor to someone, it's very very hard to do. What are her personality traits? Now I, I've speculated as has um, a couple of the guys on the Diddley Dum podcast that maybe one of her character traits is that this Doctor's actually a bit of a prick, and we just haven't picked up on it, because she's always very dismissive of her companion's feelings, she's very dis- mm. she's very um, ruthless in the way that she deals with some of the baddies. Maybe there was meant to be this sort of thing that she's actually a bit of a prick of a Doctor, but we just haven't been sold, and it hasn't really come out. I don't know, that's just speculation. But, look, I, I walked in wanting to like Jodie. I've, I've liked a number of her performances, and there have been times when, um, on our hot takes, Rob and I have given Jodie Whittaker our Player of the Week in our reviews. Mm. And we've said, you know, she gave a really good performance. She's a very capable actress. But as a Doctor, sadly, having seen now her three series, she's not very high on my list of Doctors. Mm. Again, don't hate her. She's not one of the one or two or three that I'm just like, they were a bad Doctor. Mm. She's just not in the top six or seven that I really enjoy.
1: And I think with you know, Capaldi and Trout and those other Doctors... When they're given bad material, they can rise above it. You know the performance. Right. Mm. When you've got a bad material and a performance that it's just nondescript, to be honest with you, she uh, falls in love fall, with wave. You know, but then you know you read, uh, and you know Twitter is not the, it's not the centre of the universe, as it were. But then you know you read people going how much I love the performance, that sort of stuff, and go, well, is there something I'm missing? And you know what, I watch it and I go, no, I'm actually fairly comfortable with my assessment of
3: what. Which is fine. And, which is exactly fine. So There are people who like yeah. the Peter Davison Doctor a lot more than I like the Peterson Davidson Doctor. That's okay. Exactly. It's okay to have... Different you know, opinion. Different exactly. Opinions. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I will say outright, Matt Smith, if I do a list of doctors, the one on the bottom of my list is Matt Smith. Mm. That's fine. He's at the top of a lot of people's lists mm. because he engages with them in a different way. That's mm. totally okay. Richard, anything you want to add to this? No, not really. I, I, as I
1: said, maybe I should have made the effort to watch it. <laughs> no, the thing is, uh, even when I was watching Flux, like, I know you sort of watched every episode almost like as soon as I came out, really, to get the hot takes within out. Within a day, yeah. Yeah, within a day. I mean, yeah. there were some times where basically I said, look, I can't watch it today, I'll just yeah. give it a couple of days. Like, it wasn't on my must-watch list.
2: On the Jodie Whittaker thing, look, I have watched most of her first two series. And look, I would be... She didn't really engage me i'd probably also say look i think with you petty capaldi's third series was by far his best because he really didn't engage me either initially okay but see i'm probably now more in the space and maybe i'm just a bit divorced from it because i'm probably now more in the space look i I fully acknowledge look this show is not made for me Mm. so if i watch it and enjoy it that's you know probably a bonus but really you know look i'm a 50 year old fanboy who you know, let's face it, the show probably ended with, uh, <laughs> probably ended with Legobolis. So, <laughs> wow. Or you case know, of Androzani, so. You know, go war games, granddad. go on. Yeah, no, 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 um, no, well, being fair, look, yeah. I've enjoyed a lot of stuff that came later, but I mean, the show is just not made for me. So if I engage with a great, if I don't, you know, no harm, no foul. Basically. No,
3: absolutely, I, I have no problem with people liking the show more than me, and yeah. I've enjoyed lots of pieces of modern Who, and I, mm. I've enjoyed episodes of the Jodie Whittaker era. I can give you half a dozen episodes of the Jodie Whittaker era that I think are really, really good episodes. Most of the historicals, Kablam! Um, Fugitive of the Jadoon, Village of the Angels, all really good episodes. I've enjoyed watching, so mm. I don't. I'm not completely down and dismissive on this era, like I am about the Matt Smith era, but. Um, it, it hasn't been my favourite era, but but again, you know, we are people that grew up with the classic series. Of course, we don't love it quite as much as we did that series. It is no. that, that series is a big part of our childhood. We, we've had this mm. conversation mm. before, yeah, um, and that's okay. We're allowed to not like it as much as other people. And if there are people out there discovering the show for the first time with Jodie Whittaker, and she will always, for their and life, she speaks be, to you. She yeah. speaks yeah. to them, and absolutely. Yeah. In forty years' time, they're going to be making some sort of brain download podcast equivalent. And they're talking about how well, nobody's ever been as good as Jodie Whittaker was. And, mm. uh, you know, the, for them, the show ended with Legend of the Sea Devils. Mm. That's fine, because that's going to yeah. be their childhood. Do we touch on the ratings?
2: Because I, I know, look, there, there's been a lot of discussion around...
1: Are they the... relevant these days? Everybody pounces on the overnights. But if on catch up these days... Look, we're all still scarred from the original cancellation, you know what I mean? Where they basically used the ratings <laughs> as a crux, even though it was actually incorrect. Yes. Because the ratings are still strong. The ratings, I don't, I don't care about um, personally because I think it's not a true reflection of what's going on in the television landscape. The AI figures are more interesting for me. But yes. however,
4: mm.
1: with the AI figures, they only release a figure. It'd be interesting to see what the actual comments were yeah. or are like because you know, if you read the you know some of those reports on on the box sets that are coming out from you know the, the AI research back then, they give you really good insights mm. into what people fi- you know, think yeah. about the program now. I don't think the BBC released those comments. It's interesting, actually, because it's a public broadcast. Do you think they would?
3: Look, if this was the ratings for the second season of the show, mm. and it was trying to build itself up as a big part of the zeitgeist, you would say that this is a disappointing set of ratings. For a show yeah. that is in its 13th series, having been going now for 17 years... What's well, the thing. It's perfectly it? healthy. It's, it's placings in terms of, you know, most watched yeah. shows of the day are perfectly reasonable, mm. but the AIs are some of the lowest the new series has had. But, that's are, right.
1: Are you now at the
2: point where, that's the thing, you're in your 17th year, You know, people are just jaded now. There is that sort of, they're tired. It needs I I don't know whether it needs a break or whether it needs a major retool, Whether look the general public are just because let's be honest, I mean, fandom is a very small subset of people who watch absolutely. Um, so is it a case you know, the general public are just more interested in watching other stuff now, not a 17 year old, but but, but
3: also, as we all know, appointment television is slowly dying. Mm -hmm. I think probably for most of us here now, it's probably dead. Mm. I, I struggle to think outside of sport and the news. I struggle to think of anything which I'll actually go, I need to tune in at this time, as this Mm, is broadcast, and watch it. There's every stuff that I'll stream quickly. That's the thing. thing.
2: I suppose it's probably changed. Because I know with some of the stuff, look, I mean, I I am sitting down every Wednesday night, or the last three Wednesday nights, and have made sure I watch Boba Boba Fett on the Wednesday nights. Yeah.
3: But, but even um, that, whether it's 6pm or 8pm no, or 12pm, in, indeed, you, it's your choice. you still get to watch it. Yeah, watch.
2: In, indeed, I mean I'm not sitting in front of the TV at a set time. No, no.
3: And, and, and gone are the days of if you didn't tune in at 8.30 to watch an episode of Boba Fett then that's it, you've missed that mm. potentially forever. Mm. You can now sit there and go, oh well I'm having dinner with someone tonight, I'm not going to watch Doctor Who when it goes out at 6 o'clock or 7 or whatever it is in the UK, mm. but when I get home I will watch it on Catch Up at 10.30. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say,
2: I suppose for me the honest answer is, look I've got I got my own VHS about 1986, so that hasn't been really true since then. True. So exactly. And, back, um, and
1: interesting, you know, with the McCoy years and that mm, sort of stuff, they go how low the ratings were. What they never used to do back mm, then was actually capture the amount of people recording it and watching it later on. Yep. What they're doing now...
3: Or watching it on a second set.
1: Correct. What mm. they're doing now is essentially, you watch it you know, at its original broadcast, but you can stream it within a certain time period yeah. or capture that information and, as well. And those
3: ratings are for the modern era. They're perfectly fine. It's still in the top 20 of the shows watched each day or each week, whatever yeah. it is. So so I think people are stu- still tuning in. Mm. The, the area I would say they've been all perhaps a little bit confused or not quite as engaged mm. with this series as they have. As they have. But for, again, for a season 13 of a show, and most shows don't get 13 seasons, mm. and it's being renewed for at least a 14th, it is doing perfectly healthily.
1: It's going to be very interesting going forward what, A, the expectations of the BBC would be for the Bad Wolf iteration of the program.
3: Uh, Russell V
2: 2.0.
1: Exactly. <laughs> if I think, you know, other BBC being a bit, uh, what's the word? Maybe they are in a bit denial in terms of the when RTD gets it, are they going to get the ratings they used to have with David Tennant? Because I think those days are long gone.
3: There are people who are going to tune in to the next series of Doctor Who under RTD, and think that it's just going to be as though the last 15 years didn't happen, Mm. and it's 2005 again. Mm. That's not going to happen, because RTD is not stupid, he's not going to go back 15 years in television, and RTD has changed and evolved as a person and as a writer. You look at what RTD's written over the last couple of years, and it is very different. It is very good, yeah. Yeah, It's very, very good, and it's very different. But Mm. his last two series, I think, were It's a Sin and a very English scandal. yeah. And they were both exceptionally well-written shows. Mm. So I have every faith that he can write very, very good. But mm. he's not going to write the same thing he wrote in 2005, 2006. No, no. So no. there are people who are going to tune in expecting that and will be disappointed. Absolutely. There will be other people who will think there's too much. But look, I don't know. I think that Archie Deep probably doesn't know a lot about what he's going to do. I know, I know there's stories that he's sort of fleshed out a few of the storylines he wants to do and a few of the ideas, and that's that's great. But... I don't know that an doctor has been cast, I don't know that companions have been cast. I don't know that things like, you know, is he getting Murray Gold back? I don't know. Are the certain directors coming back or is it a he- complete new complete I don't know yeah. Yeah, mm. it, it could be very very different so mm.
1: stay tuned stay tuned that's all yeah. we can say
3: is stay tuned really but uh, <laughs> the casting I think the casting is going to set the tone I, I
2: think the casting will be quite interesting because I, yeah. I think you're either going to get
3: well, well that, let's be fine in fact honest there is no piece of casting that they can do that will not cause an uproar absolutely in some sort somebody. Of you're going to upset yes.
1: somebody regardless it but happens. I
2: suppose is it you really are at the point where it's just look basically the fans we're just going to get somebody we think the general public will watch. Yes, and look, we don't care if the fans all scream and carry on.
3: It's like that story that Kevin Smith told when he was getting certain negative feedback about his Masters of the Universe series uh, in certain corners of, of fandom there, and he went into Netflix to talk about the show and he was sort of very down, and they said, "Oh, what's the matter?" He said, "Oh, you know." you fully not happy, you know, I I know there's, you know, 2,000 negative reviews on this side and everything, and they've gone, mate, we have 200 million subscribers. We don't care what 2,000 sad fans on the internet say. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and the BBC would be the same. We've got 3 to 4 million people tuning in live do we care what 1,400 people on Twitter think?
1: Mm. No. No, that's the lens I've got to put on it now, is basically yeah. cast the person they want to cast. As you said, they're going to cop flack whatever they do. Yeah. And, you are to hide into nothing.
3: Yeah, and, and again, it's going to depend on the individual they cast and if they've got the stories to, to write for them. Yeah. And if they turn around and go, look, ladies and gentlemen, some of you will be disappointed, but we've cast a straight white man. Mm. Let me introduce to you Hugh Grant. Yeah. Okay, you've got Hugh Grant to play the Doctor. You go with it. Yeah, exactly. Now, there'll be some people who won't forgive him for for that. And, and, you know, I I have learned the term cishet over the last year through (laughs) Doctor Who Twitter. Um, I didn't know what that meant beforehand. (laughs) Can you please
1: explain it to the uh, sort of older people in the audience? Me and Richard. (laughs) a,
3: A straight heterosexual person who is the gender that they were born with. You guys. Yeah. <laughs> okay. there are people who have said they won't watch the show if it's a straight white man there are people who have said we won't watch the show if it's not a straight white man as I say there are going to be angry oh. people on Twitter whichever yeah. way you go do the 3 million people who are watching Doctor Who regularly care about that not one iota they will sit there and go oh they're the Doctor and they'll tune in and if it's a good adventure they mm. will watch it they don't care what the Doctor's Black, white, male, female, all whatever. The rest of it, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, they just want a good actor or yeah. actress, and, it's written, and a good story. Yeah,
1: and it's written for the actor, actress, whatever in mind. Yes. Yeah. And, and and
3: there's no point casting Hugh Grant if you haven't got good stories and a good character to go with that. Correct. Um, but you can cast an unknown. I mean, I mean, Tom Baker was a fairly unknown actor, mm. but with a really good character, really right for the role, and did a very very good job. Yeah. That could happen again.
1: Now, speaking of producers, and i segue into the next section, Dave. I might get you to uh, introduce this a little bit, please.
3: Well, the last time we gathered, we decided to have a conversation about the best script editors in the show. Mm. So mm. I said, let's have a chat about the best producers in the show. Yes, And Mark, you ran with it? Let's
1: wind it back a bit, right? So I did some research into this topic. I know you're looking a bit shocked there, Richard, but I actually did. And I don't think a day with a television <laughs> producer <laughs> qualifies as
2: research, but go on. No, I've actually got two different sources oh. here.
1: One's from Wikipedia
2: and well, the
3: other... T- <laughs> Why
1: well, you also read the TARDIS Inside that, Out? He, he, you, went he went to
3: Wikipedia. <laughs>
1: Excuse me, Jens, I'm having to have a serious conversation here. Alright, so if you look at the Wikipedia definition of a producer, it's basically a television producer is a person who oversees one or more aspects of, of video production on a television program. Some producers take more of an executive role in that they conceive new programs and pitch them to television networks, but upon acceptance they focus on business matters such as budgets and contracts. Other producers are more involved with the day-to-day workings, participating in activities such as screenwriting, set design, casting, and directing. Now this definition, Richard, is from a Day with a TV Producer, a very good uh, <laughs> publication from 1980, which uh, J&T basically got the job, and the first thing he did was got some uh, got some cash for a book. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, got some, God got bless some,
2: him. Got some promotional stuff in there straight away. Excellent. So
1: uh, I'll just read this a little bit out. As producer, John is responsible for every aspect of the program. He is in charge of the timetable and budget, appoints a director for each story, and with the director chooses a cast. And also attends bunga bunga parties <laughs> organised by the series' unofficial continuity advisor. If we look at this, uh, I suppose, in the prism of Doctor Who land or Doctor Who lens, uh, we've had a number of uh, producers on the classic series and a multitude of producers on the new series. So we'll we know on.
2: producer or showrunner.
1: Here's the thing, right? So basically, if you look at the pro- role of producer in the classic, it's now morphed into. The showrunner, it's actually new modern television production, you've got a showrunner who looks after a show, but that's more on the creative side, Yes. where they have other sub-producers there looking after the budgets and everything like that, but essentially the, the showrunner these days has a creative control on the on the yeah. program, um, and but however that's worked to varying degrees of success, I think you'd but say. But you can also
3: say that some of the producers we're about to talk about have also had a not as big a creative direction role but certainly a full one is there any doubt that Philip Kinchcliffe wasn't sitting down with Robert Holmes regularly and talking about the sort of stories he wanted to have the sort of ideas he wanted to have the sort of writers he wanted to have and the direction Mm. of the show I don't think there's any doubt that he wasn't doing that now Mm. yes it was Robert Holmes actually doing the script drafting and and the script um, editing but do you doubt that Philip Kinchcliffe wasn't creatively involved in the
1: direction of the show. Absolutely. I think uh, even if we go back further now, it's even Barry Letts as well, if you think about well, it. Well, I, I was going to say, yeah. he was probably my
2: example because he and Terence Dix, really, I think, were kind of joined at the hip.
1: The dynamic duo, really, that, really? Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think. And that's probably the, the sort of, you know, ultimate meshing, really, I think. Of, of creative minds.
1: Yeah. If you look in the other scale of that, where you've got the ones that didn't work particularly well, well, if you think about it this way, Jonathan Turner was a very good producer in terms of getting something on the screen. Yes. Mm, Sorting budgets, everything. up. Like, from in, the sto- yes. From a creative terms. process, yep. he he's basically outsourced that. He mm. might have a couple of ideas. Well, it's essentially, I want the master, I want this, I want this, and give it I to... Want I want yeah. another Earthshock. I want another Earthshock, and then go away, give it to Eric to try and, you know, fashion <laughs> a series. I mean, Cartmel really took that script editor slash creative process head-on, really, because, I mean, mm. even Cartmel said John was sort of devoid of... Not interest, but he certainly was...
3: Well, well, he was uh, done, wasn't he really?
2: Interest is probably actually a good term. I think yeah. particularly towards the end. He, he was finished.
3: As Andrew Cartmore said with something like Greater Show in the Galaxy, mm. he, now, Cartmore didn't want to call the show Greater Show in the Galaxy, but that was John Nathan-Turner's big input to the story. Mm. And Cartmore said, well, look, I just accepted his decision on what the title of it should be, and then he just let me write whatever I yes. wanted. Yes. Mm. So what do you think makes a good producer? Well, so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, you know, Who is the the standout of them? And it really depends on what your criteria is. Mm. Is it the person who produced your favourite era of the show? Mm. Because that might be one person for me. Is it the person who did the most in changing the production? Mm. Because that might be another one. Is it the person who delivered the best scripts? Mm. That could be a different person. Mm. Or is it just purely uh, pound for pound, story for story, the best stories that they'll produce? Now, if you go for that latter one, John Wiles has got to be pretty up there. (laughs) Yes. Because he only gives four stories, but they were four exceptionally good stories. stories. Yes, true. his batting average is very, very good. Yes.
2: But there's the other side of it, you know, where he's arguing with William Hartnell, and there's other stuff going on in the background. He Ultimately, this is just too hard and bails.
3: Uh, Absolutely.
2: Um, I suppose you also have Philip Hinchcliffe now, who does an amazing run of stories, but towards the end of his time, pisses off the BBC hierarchy and is ultimately moved on.
3: It mm. goes massively over budget. Yes. And, look, I have a huge regard for Philip Hinchcliffe. I think any conversation about the best producer has to include him in that.
4: Mm. But
3: how much of what he delivered, that, that excellence, was because of Robert Holmes? And mm. how much of what he did in terms of the budget was actually inherited from Barry Letts? Yeah. And this is where we have to go back to the Barry Letts conversation. And yes. say, when you look at the show where it was when Letts started... Yes. And the show where it was when Letts finished... Yes. Now... Contrast. The contrast yeah. is amazing. He, yeah. Although, I
2: guess if you're saying that the tone for the Pertwee era is set by Spearhead, you then really got to talk about Derek Sherwin.
3: And, and again, Derek Sherman is someone who deserves to have his name in the mix, but mm. but if I look at the Barrelets era in terms of production, he takes the ratings from struggling to, once again, peak mainstream viewing. Mm. Well,
2: considering though we're talking about you know, it. axing, it. axing yeah. the series at the end of Series 7. And he, yeah.
3: he, he really is the start of that golden years of the mid-70s mm. that the, the, the show the, the really. That Hinswift then builds on. Yeah, the so then builds on. He's the one who really sets up that classic dynamic of the Doctor, a female companion yep. whose role is a very particular role. Yep. He's the one who changed them from rehearse, record to actual proper studio blocks and changed the whole way that they produce.
4: Mm.
3: He's the one that goes out there and says, I'm going to be at the cutting edge. Of special effects. Mm. Now, look, we, we joke a bit about the CSO and, and, and where it's overused and all the rest of it, but but he was one of the first Thank people you, in the Paul, BBC. Paul Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But he was one of the first people who was actually doing all that Pioneer. sort of stuff, yeah. getting all these different special. ideas and what, yeah. what could be done.
2: Yeah. Um, plus, plus but, I guess, I was going to say, plus also in his favour, I think, production techniques and that have moved on as well, because you've now actually got proper portable cameras. You have um, and the thing also. So you can actually do more with what you've got.
1: You can do sound effect
2: dubbing yeah. later yes. on. And, things and, like and
3: that. during his time, the mm. licence fee was changing from black and white to colour, yep. which yep. was three or four times the yes. yes. Now, let, let, let's leave aside the, um, the the political debate about whether it's okay <laughs> to, to charge someone a tax to watch TV, which is, you know, wonderful in the UK and everyone else in the world goes, what? Um, but, you know, don't touch the BBC, it's sacred. Um, anyway... But but he, he did see that money coming in and was able to work with the BBC and say, right, our revenue is increasing, yep. therefore I want the mm. budget to increase and he could overspend and get away with it mm. and hand it all over to Philip Hinchcliffe. By the time you get to Philip Hinchcliffe's third year, really that transition from black and white to colour has happened, so the budget isn't going up every year, inflation's kicking in, and when he goes 40% over budget, they're like, there's no there's no money now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, a- a- again, Philip Hinchcliffe does a great job. He's very good at driving... The idea is that I want a show about this. I want a show set here. I want to do this sort of thing. And Robert goes, yes, good idea. Let's make that happen. So I, I think for The Picture Cliff is really good. Yeah. But in terms of actual production and changing the way that show yeah. is made, I don't think Barry Lambert can be beaten. Verity
1: yeah. Lambert.
4: Verity Lambert. <laughs> that's, that's a very good question I was going to say because... Bam! Yeah. Because really, if you think about
1: everybody after Verity Lambert have it, it basically inherited a template. In terms of, and
2: I mean, you even have the moment where Sidney Newman sort of says, all right, look, you clearly know what you're doing. I'm walking so away, So I'm yeah. going to stop looking over your shoulder all well, the time.
3: The problem is, Verity Lambert, obviously she made my favourite year of the show, so I'm not going to knock that. She made a very creatively deep and rich mm. series and she was turning out around 50 episodes a year which mm. is a pretty phenomenal thing to do did verity lambert make a show that was sustainable in the long term probably not and it, took, it was up to others to make the show that's exactly
1: it because you think about peter bryant for example who gets a lot of stick about season six mm. not, because, least from dicks. not least from terence dicks because basically they had you know as you said 52 episodes a year to fill and although there just seems to be crisis upon crisis of crisis happening in the background really so yes he got something on television but although there's some
3: good stuff and, there and, and terry sticks when he came and spoke here in Melbourne a few years ago mm. did not talk particularly highly of peter bryant's professionalism um and the hour at which he decided it was time to knock off and go to the pub every day so look that's a matter of record but mm. <laughs> the other thing is peter bryant i think he's phenomenally lucky that when he sat there and went, I've got 20 weeks of television and I've got nothing to fill them with, the people he was able to throw the ball to were Terence Dix, Malcolm Hulk and Robert Holmes. Yeah. And they basically filled the entire back end of that season. Now, yeah. if you wanted three writers to fill 20 episodes of television, mm. I don't think you could go much better than Dix, Hulk and Holmes. No. So Brian was very lucky that out of that we got some quite good good television, yeah. but it wasn't because of his work, it was just because no. he was surrounded by some junior people yeah. who were all there to make a bit of a name for themselves. Yeah. So
1: in terms of when they made that decision to go from black and white to colour and reduce the episode count to 26, was that a BBC decision? Was that a Barry Letts? No, because Sherman was still there, wasn't he? So, was so Barry, yeah.
3: Barry Letts claims it, but I don't see how that can be accurate. Because no. season seven was all... Unless they did it partway through the production of season seven, which seems un- un- unlikely
1: to Yeah, make. yeah. But in terms of, mm. I suppose, running with it, I mean, definitely Barry grabbed it by the horns, as it were. And, and, and re- it, yeah.
2: really reinvented the show. Yes, he did. He, he did. Mm.
3: And even decisions that we look back now and go, you know, do we like every Pertwee six-parter? And, and yes, there are a lot of six-parters that drag. And yes, there are a lot of Pertwee six-parters that drag. Some mm. of them are very good, though, on record. Mm. But he very quickly worked out that if you did five stories of which three were six-parters... The way you could amortise the money for the year mm. across those means you could do a lot more in terms of cast production, hiring helicopters, exactly. all, all that sort of thing. Yeah, And, exactly. and it's very canny production. Talk about the sorry.
2: first sort of ten years, <laughs> 10, 15 years of the show, let's yes. let's let's expand beyond that and in say into the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. Yes. Yes.
1: Well, again, Graham Williams had, like all the producers, had some really good ideas and took it in a different different way from what Hinchcliffe had. Part of that was a BBC edict to say well, reduce yes, the just yes, horror. But I, I think he had more of a, a fantasy sort of view. When you look
3: at the season that is unquestionably the Graham Williams vision, that's season 16, and I think that holds up remarkably well. And mm. I think that is a very good reflection of him. The season's either side, as fond as I am of a number of stories in there, I don't think work quite as well, and and the final point I make before yep. Richard smashes me, I don't, know,
4: I don't know. I, I can, I can Steady, steady. I, I don't know. I'm um, not gonna smash. The, the, the
3: final The final point I make is I really like and respect as an adult Mm. the idea that Williams had of show having much more literature based influences and and that sort of thing and as an adult I could watch shows like The Androids of Tara and The Horns of Naimon and a number of others and go that's a really clever idea that's a really good script really well delivered yeah as a kid, watching those repeats again and again on the ABC, I was bored.
1: Yeah. Rival's Operation, particularly... Rival's Operation bad. is a great example. So it's wonderful now.
3: I was utterly, utterly yeah. bored by the Robos Operation at the yeah. age of eight. Yeah. Frankly, even at the age of 18. Yeah. I watch it now at the age of something and... <laughs>
1: I'm yeah. still younger than me,
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I watch, I watch it now as an adult, yeah. and I go, this is a wonderfully creative thing. The mm. graph in Decay is a wonderful character. Correct. Garen and Unstoff are wonderful characters. The yeah. writing's really clever. Like the direction's really good as well. The like direction's really good. Yeah. The world building is amazing. Yeah. I can really rave about the robots operation. I can rave mm. about the androids of Tara. I can speak very highly of the power of Kroll. As a kid, I was utterly bored by all of them.
2: All I was going to say about Series 16, look, you're right, I think it is the best example of Grow vision. I would probably make the point I don't think it's terrifically well managed because there is a lot of build-up, but it is very obvious by Armageddon factor oh, the that they are running on fumes and the money has very, very clearly run and out. And the
1: ending is still not defined. No,
2: and, and that's... <laughs>
3: and, and you've got to say that during the course of William's tenure, one of the most important things he needs to do is manage the main cast. Mm. He forgets to rehire Mary Tam. Mm. He <laughs> isn't able to rehire um, John Leeson. Mm. He forgets to hire Tom Baker again, and it's only because the BBC comes in over the top of him and gets him a new contract. that Tom Baker still lasts past season 16. I, I think, think, you think you're right, yeah.
2: Plus he has issues with Tom. He has issues so... with Tom. Mm. Um... His, his... And and let's face it, when he has issues with Tom, rather than putting his foot down, the BBC actually backed Tom. Yeah. So y- you are kind of
3: caught. Mm. Yeah, look, he had a leading man who was completely off the leash and backed by the BBC. The money was running out. And even when he tried to do sensible things like save a bit of money for charter to make sure that mm. for his last season that the the final show is going to be really really effective inflation was running at such a point by then that basically that money was, you know, it was half that the right value. Yeah. it was like mm. and had he spent a bit more money on destiny of the daleks in, in hindsight he probably mm. should have because the money's value was just going down and down again but again was his vision for the show one that kids could really be engaged with yes I'm not sure that it was. And he forgets the basic things. Even Louise Jamison's exit from the show is not well handled. Hmm. Mary Tams is very badly handled. She was saying to him, I'm not coming back for another year. And hmm. he left it too late, yep. at which point he didn't have an exit for it. He obviously lost John Leeson, Miss Tom Baker, as I've said. There are a number of production things that he doesn't get right. Uh, the script editing is a little bit of a misfire. And again, when we talk about producers, we talk about very Lambert and David Whittaker. We talk about Letts and Dicks. We talk mm. about Ines Lord and Jerry Davis. We talk about Hinchcliffe and Holmes. Whereas Graham Williams, who was his script editor? He had three. Mm. And, and each. Uh, and,
4: and
2: one of them probably wasn't really paying attention a lot of the time. So. No. It's...
3: Again, I mean, Robert Holmes was very much doing it as a favour and on his way mm. out. Douglas Adams, look, I'm so glad he's part of the show. He wrote some really good stuff. I think the best stuff in Horns of Nymon probably came out of Douglas Adams. Mm. But is he the guy you want to be the hard nut? putting in together a really no. disciplined no. season of stories? No. Absolutely not. And look, I think Anthony Reid did a very good job, but he's not rem- remembered as one of the most dynamic. So no. that, again, is something that has to be laid at the feet of the producer.
1: Yeah, yeah that's right. And then we move on from Mr. Williams to the longest running. Oh, is he the longest running? He's still, well, of the classic series, definitely.
3: In, in terms of well, seasons probably, made.
2: Well, I was going to say probably Peter Darvall Evans, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, yes. Uh, well, in, in terms of seasons made. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's
1: JNT. It's JNT. It's JNT. Yeah. He was, He was not only producer, he was overlord, overseer of an empire which uh, unfortunately <laughs> was, was crumbled underneath his feet and didn't actually notice it really to, uh, until no. it was finally too late. But, but I mean, but do
3: you do you judge Rome by Rome at the height of its power or do you judge Rome as the Visigoths walked into the capital?
2: Well, more interesting stuff is probably when the Visigoths walked into the capital, <laughs> to be honest. The Visigoths walked into a bar. <laughs>
3: Look, it's not a new observation, but if J&T had left after four seasons, we would be talking about him in the Revered. same way we talked For about sure. all the other Absolutely. Absolutely, uh, If J&T had just done the back three years with Carver, we'd probably be talking about him in very good terms. Mm. It's full totality of those years that J&T did that dragged him down. But again, at a point where no one cared about the show other than mm. him, the point where the money was absolutely drying up, and mm. it was just a thing the BBC gave him 14 weeks a year to put on. Mm. He delivered that show. And look, we joke about Greatest Show in the Galaxy, but that story would not have made it to television without J.M.T.
1: Absolutely. I mean, he avoided another charter. He, avoid he did avoid and, and he needs total credit for that.
3: Um, he was still getting really good guest cast coming in right until the end. Yeah. yeah. That was down to him. I, I think that his failings in terms of burning people and burning cast and crew and, yeah. are legendary. And yeah. that is a big problem. I've said it before at the end of the barrelets era you are left with a staple of actors directors writers designers who all have been working on the show mm. are all very very good and again when Hitchcock takes over now he doesn't just use the barrelets turn sticks stall of people, but he can quickly say, okay, I've got a Robert Holmes, I've got or Baker and Dave Martin. I've got a Stuart
1: Banks, you know, and yeah. those bringing those sort of people. He brings that, new yeah. people
3: into something exactly. as well. Yeah. But but he can call upon a lot of the old guard yeah. and, and and he's got Michael E. Bryant to do some directing. He's got Christopher yeah. Barry to do some directing. People that have been nurtured through the let's and Dicks era. Mm. Whereas JNT Burns everybody's come beforehand I'm not
1: interested in having that old toot back no that's
3: right having said
2: that though I I think there was also a thing wasn't there towards the end that the BBC really were just treating it as a training ground for new directors new production staff that sort of stuff so quite often that was forced on him like you, you can't not that he may have wanted them anyway but you know look you can't have Michael E. Bryant or whoever you want to have um, well, I mean, I think y- so. y- like,
1: yeah, some of those guys didn't want to come back anyway. No. But, I mean, but, but, but
3: you know, Peter Grimwade is, in my view, one of the top three directors that worked on the show. Yeah. Mm. J and T burned him over something absolutely stupid. unnecessary.
1: It was absolutely stupid, and we could have had more.
3: Matthew Robinson, a very good director. Yep. for The two stories he did, J and T burned him again over the something most trivial. Yeah, exactly. That that is a problem. Yep. And you know, Barry Letts is not this wonderful, evuncular friendly figure. You know, when you actually listen to the stories about Barry Letts as a producer, a lot of people talk about him as being a pretty hard taskmaster and he was the one that would come in for the producers and be like, stop dicking around, stop doing this, that's stupid, that's stupid, you do your job properly, you do your job properly. Exactly, yeah. He he sounds like he was a bit of a hard-ass and he he wasn't this, you know, Barry Letts took us all down to the pub and he wasn't that guy but... That's probably not the producer's job.
1: Obviously, the show finished in 1989.
2: Do we talk about Peter Double Evans? The only reason I raised him is a joke, when the new Adventures that came out, that he was the new producer of Doctor Who. Wow. Um, and j t sort of did that. excuse me?
1: <laughs> well, j t certainly wasn't either, so... Yeah.
2: Well, we can talk about him, because, look, he did leave a legacy, certainly on a... Maybe not on the show, but certainly on fandom, and, and fans who were active in the 90s.
3: Yeah, look... Again, as somebody who's an outspoken fan of The Virgin New Adventures, mm. and indeed The Missing Adventures, I obviously have a lot of time for what Doug Evans did. He was the one that said, OK, if the show is not being made on television, we will fill the space mm. with books. I think that what he put together did leave the show in a much healthier position to come back in 2005. Mm. But the, the other point that I'll make is he also was very good at bringing back old talent. You know, he got Terrence Sticks in, he got Nigel Robertson in. But he also nurtured a lot of new talent yeah. as well. But if you read some of the stuff that he was doing, and indeed his, um, his, his little sort of production notes bit at the back of the seat. he talked about his vision for the books and his vision for the era, this coherent idea of the future that he had within the Doctor Who universe. He, he actually did have a both on, on screen or on the page and backstage vision of what he wanted the series to be which is very like a producer or a showrunner
1: and he was doing that role for how long
3: he did about a third to half the run and then rebecca levine took over be
1: so talking what about 93
3: 94 around about there yeah. Yeah, yeah but again
1: not having a go, but it was a very niche Oh, it was, it, was it, was very, very, it was very particularly niche, towards
2: I mean? the end oh, i think a lot of fans got into them initially um yeah. i think when it then started becoming two books a month. And some of them weren't that good, and you know, and then you sort of get the same writers coming through again and again and again, and they're putting in jokes in the novels and that sort of stuff. By the end, I think it is very definitely a writer's club. But mm.
3: yeah, I'll, again, when they bring some new people into that, yep. they still produce some really good books. Yeah,
2: and look, they found some great writers. I mean, look, one of my favorites was David A. McKinty, he'd probably be my pick. Um, Lance Parkin was another one. I, yep.
3: I mean, Paul hmm. Cornell has to be mentioned. Yes. He wrote some very good ones. Yep. Gareth Roberts wrote some really good missing adventures he, and, and went on to write for the series. And Gaddis as well. did as well, actually. Mark Gaddis, yeah. again, yep. Nightshade, to, I still think is right. the best in the Gareth, Mark Gaddis has written. Yeah. And he went on to write for the series. Um, a guy called Russell T Davies wrote a book. Now, I'm not Never saying heard that uh, he, you know, he got his big break in the in the world of television on the back of New Adventures, not, a, not at all, but, you know, he was part of it. You did, you did.
1: yeah. And, it, and look, you know, as much as you know, YouTube bag, big finish. Just us, man. just YouTube. Yes. You know, they've been been producing Doctor Who and have a vision for it. Yes, um, for the last I don't know thirty eight years, I think it feels like. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, they've had. But here is the thing: they've had two, I suppose, executive producers, Gary mm-hmm. Russell and, and Nicholas Briggs, who's been doing yep. it for for ages. But again, they're quite different in terms of how they saw their yes. universes where Gary is much more I think focused on more original stuff and he always had that view I'm not going to go back and do recasts and whatever where Nicholas Briggs is more now I'm just going to more <laughs> mash
3: up than a, uh, a Sunday lunch at a British pub. But again if you talk to fans of Big Finish about what it is they really remember mm. and it is a lot of the unusual stuff they did you know, particularly stuff like where they'll just cast one actor as the Doctor for one story, yeah. where they'll bring back different people as the master, and mm. they'll do some quite different things that you just couldn't do on television. No. And I think that's a very respectful thing to do. And obviously
1: they're making money from it and keeping some people happy, so knock yourselves well, out, It's a
3: private enterprise, so if they're not making money, they don't keep going. So no, exactly, right. so they must be
1: making something. Must be doing okay, yeah. Well, the, modern, the, the role of producers producer morphs really, in the uh, when the show comes back, because it's that showrunner model that was... Uh, when did that sort of come out? Was that sort of late 90s in America or early
3: 90s? Certainly it? Aaron Sorkin on the Sorkin, West Wing yeah. is, is sort of held up as the big sort of breakthrough of that sort of model, mm. um, particularly moving on from the concept of the writer's room, whereas all, all the TV being sort of made in the late 80s, early 90s is all writer's room. Look at all yep. the Treks, for example. It's yep. all about the writer's room. And it's yeah. really Sorkin of, that says, no, this is my vision. Mm-hmm. And yes, we've got a writer's room and different people will finish different drafts of the script. Yeah. But the, everything is going through the lens of my work. Mm. Yes. And, and production decisions are being made by him as well, which is the difference. And I think that's the interesting thing to try and delineate. Russell T. Davis is held up as being the, in inverted commas, producer of his era of the show. But how much of what j t did was being done by RTD? and how much of it was being done by someone like Phil Collinson.
1: Exactly. Now,
3: mm. I, I, I know that Davies was infamous for his tone meetings and saying, right, this, this is how I want this, this episode to look, and this is how this needs to be done to match the story. And, you know, he would say to the director, OK, this character has been designed to be this sort of person, so I need you to cast this sort of a character. Mm. And, and that was all working together. But how many of those hard budgetary decisions were being made by Davies? And how many were made by Phil Collinson? And that's to go around and go, right, well, I need to hire this many sets, and I need to hire this many actors, and I need to hire this many cameras. And sorry, Dave, sorry, Russell, you can't have that because I can't afford it. I think it's definitely. Yeah, well, yeah. see, so I um,
2: uh, mentioned Aaron Sorkin, see, so JMS probably in genre terms. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think he's the big one. And I mean, again, he had that. You know, he had his obviously overarching vision for how he wanted B five creatively. Yes, for how he wanted B five to look and feel, yeah. and how the stories but would pan the out. But day
1: to day production. Well, like, that's the thing. Nuts and and bolts you know,
2: James is probably one of the first really genre ones who was constantly engaging with fans and, and whatever. And you know, and he you read through his notes. He says, "I had this beautiful script written, and then of course it goes to the producer. We can't afford to do these shots. Um, so, you, or you need to lose." seven seconds out of something so he had to go through and trim the script and trim the completed stuff so he is very much he had drives a creative vision but he's got douglas netter and whatever behind him mm. Re- really holding the purse strings yeah. so um and making the deal the distribution deals and those sorts of things and you know that's really how we get
3: series five again you talk about terence dixon his role as script editor he talks about a lot of that sort of thing where mm. he would commission a writer and say right this is the idea go write me a draft script he would come in and say, right, uh, now you have here the bad guy having a communications room and a conference room and an office. What I'm going to suggest is that we have a big conference room with a television at one end and a desk at the other, <laughs> and, and, and we've just turned three sets into yeah. one. It sounds
1: like yeah. he's working from home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's predicting the COVID yeah. working environment.
4: But, but yes. again, yeah. well, you know,
3: Terence Dix would say, you know, he, would, he would read the line, 50 soldiers come over the hill, scrub it out two (laughs) (laughs) but then but then it was the job of the producer you could have an
2: army of five and we can talk about the action (laughs) (laughs) look at that battle happening over there
3: absolutely but but dicks again says that he would deliver a script he knows would be within the budget Mm. now if a director and the producer could then go actually if we sort of saved a bit of money here and did this we can have 10 soldiers not five or we can have a bit of an action scene here famously ambassadors of death where terence turned the Whole hijacking the convoy into a guy holds up a stop sign and knocks out the driver and takes the the, the lorry. Yeah, and the director got together with Letts and said, "Well, actually, no. We can we can afford to have a few extras here. We'll have a helicopter sweep in and a smoke machine. And let's do a really big thing. Mm. Yep, that's fine. You don't get to have this over here, but." There's a negotiation. Dicks yeah. delivered a script that yeah. could be cheaper then they found extra stuff in it. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how that dynamic worked in the new series. Who who made that hardcore? Was it was it Collinson? I
1: think it was more Collinson, I'll be honest um,
3: with I you. I think it was wasn't it
2: the Silurians, I think. RTD said initially he was extremely unhappy with the yes. way that the design was done.
3: I think so. And
2: yes. it was sort of well, we spent the money now, so you either make them not Silurians or that's what they look like now because we're not paying to redo the masks. Now, that obviously would have come from someone behind the scenes who's doing the bean counting. And
1: then you go to Planet of the Dead where they basically got a guy in a fly mask wearing <laughs> overalls because they spent all the money obviously on the desert and the bloody bus that broke anyway. Yeah, but that's uh, right. So, do you think in terms of, um, you mentioned fan engagement, JMS had a very uh, high fan engagement and still does. Yep. Do you think it's important for showrunners to go and be, I mean, Artidig was notorious, he said basically he'll use DWM as his mouthpiece, but he doesn't want to do
3: the, the all that sort is absolutely of stuff. Without him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it's dangerous mm. and it works with a personality like JMS, who, look, I think he's a really good guy and he's, um he's, sent some really nice tweets to the Doctor mm. Who show over time, so, you know, credit to him. But but I think James is also a very, very strong personality and probably was a bit of a prick to work with. So when the fans said, we've got an idea, and it was a dumb idea, he would just go, that's a dumb idea, I'm not
4: yeah. doing that.
2: But and, plus, he did always say he, it was very good to have you, you know, ego stroked when when you put out Saha Doom and the fans just went nuts over it. So, yes. um, and I think he was also the one he was talking about, you know, video is bad, but... As a writer, it is really, really cool to think that there are people so desperate to see your show that they're paying people in the United States to take the thing for you and send it over. We haven't talked about Stephen Moffat. And I think
3: if we're going to start talking about where the budget started to limit production, mm. we have to then move into the Moffat era. Now, mm. now, look, again, I've got my problems problems with some of the Moffat era. Series 10 is my second favourite series of the whole new season, so like, credit to him there. The Smith era is my least favourite era of the whole show, so there. So putting my personal opinions of Moffat aside, there is no doubt that Moffat put together a very particular vision of the show that he wanted and from a writing point of view, delivered on that vision very, very well, whether it was to my liking or not. But I think that when we learn one day about all that was going on behind the scenes in the Moffat era, particularly when Series 7 which, let's face it, should have been Series 7 and Series 8. Correct. They were two different series produced a year apart. Yes. And I think it's just because they didn't want to have one of those DWB-style headlines of, there's only six episodes this year. Mm. They've gone, no, 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 no. This this series is actually 12 episodes. Um, there's just going to be a 12-month break in the middle. But it's still one series. I mean, that was a huge piece of spin that fandom bought. Oh, yeah. But, but clearly, the budget was such that the BBC could only make half of what they were making before in... Those years leading up to
1: the anniversary. Yeah, and then even in the anniversaries, there's going to be so much Doctor Who, you're going to not basically be able to step over it. And all of a sudden, you get a special, pretty, oh, very a, good, very good and high budget and everything like that. You know, had a couple of nice spin-offs at the Five-ish Doctors reboots and a, like, a science show, which we really, really don't really care about. But, you know, you had something there, but you could tell the budgets were, were squeezed. Mm. Especially when you you have lost essentially a season. I think that's what the start of the detriment... Of, I mean, Russell, Russell T. Davis, you can, you know... Got, I've got problems with some of the things he did, but at least the show was on every year consistently, and had spin-offs and everything like that, where Moffat, basically the ball started being dropped, where you had cut seasons.
3: Moffat has certainly hinted that he had to make some creative decisions he would not want have, to have made, mm. because the budget was coming out there, but but again, who's the Phil Collinson of the Moffat era? Now you see, I don't know. Now whether that's because they're a much more low-key character or personality, or whether... There wasn't quite that same sort of. Well, he was place. going through them quite. <laughs> <laughs> he, had,
1: he had Carolyn Skinner, who was a raised. They had a whole. Yeah, you definitely. You're right, though. They had quite a few. But a bit like the script editor, is a very background, aren't they? Mm. You don't really sort of, you know, at least in the classic series, you used to know who the script editor was and the producer. These days it's very much they are part of a cog of a machine.
3: Yeah, and yeah. look, it, it wouldn't be uh, Richard and I guest on a podcast unless we brought up Kevin Smith at some point. <laughs> so let's do <laughs> it now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Kevin Smith has spoken about his relationship professionally with Scott Mosier, who's been the producer of most of his movies. Mm. And he said that he would turn around with the script that he wants to make And then it's only because Scott Mosher could sit there and make the very small budgets actually work and translate them into television that Smith was able to do what he did. And Mm. again, Smith talks about when he was making stuff for $200,000 and Collinson's like, well, sorry, dude, you can't have that because that's the budget, compared to when they went up to $20 million. And Smith would say, hey, we've got a problem here. And Mosher's like, that's "That's okay, just throw some money at that. Throw some money at it, yeah. And and, and, and clearly, I think there's a point in the early RTD years where for, for all of the discipline I'm sure Phil Collinson had, they could go, there's a bit of a problem here, and Collinson's like, that's okay, throw some money at it. By the Moffat era, they're like, we've got a problem. Well, yeah. Yeah, deal sort it
1: out. Yep. Yeah, deal with it, you know. And of course, and you get to the Chibnall era.
3: Where whatever else you say about it, the mm. production visuals look stunning. Mm. They, they've taken new technology and new ways of filming, mm. and they the Chibnall era, whatever else you say about it, and again, I've got pros and cons, we don't need to revisit that, but it looks stunning. Mm. And from a production point of view, I think they have done a lot with what they've got. Mm. But again, whether it's the budget, the BBC, COVID, Flux was six episodes. Yeah. Now, I think it was probably planned to be eight and COVID... I mean, because COVID adds a huge expense to production.
1: Oh, absolutely. you got COVID inspectors and... and COVID and, inspectors. Yeah, no. and, you know, yeah, no. you know
3: limit, limits to how many people you can Correct. have. Exactly. All the rest of that. Yeah. So that probably cost the show a couple yeah. of episodes. But, but again... We're seeing the show being truncated a little bit as it goes through. Yeah. And producers, showrunners, whatever you want to call them, have to deal with that.
1: So going forward, RTD takes the helm again. What do we think is going to happen in terms of a uh, produc—I mean, the production system? Obviously, they've got Bad Wolf now. They're doing um, Dark Materials, I think it's one of the TV shows. Yeah. yeah, my wife watches it. She loves it. In terms of Doctor Who structure going forward, do you think we're going to get full whack of 13 again, or... That
3: that seems to be unlikely. I think Mm. that the BBC, and again, I'm not going to start to get into a huge discussion about the management of the BBC, but I think that for a state-funded broadcaster, the BBC is remarkably thinly stretched, and really needs to work out what it needs to do and what it wants to do, but but it is very thinly stretched in terms of resources. There is an
2: argument going on in the UK at the moment, isn't there, around the future of the licensing system and whether, you know, that's now really a tenable model.
3: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean in the in the age of streaming mm. and in the age of subscription services, it's very, very hard to say the licence fee is a sustainable model. Now when you say that to people in the UK, they go, you can't privatise the BBC. And you just point out, well, every other state-funded broadcaster in the world where they use one is just done out of consolidated revenue. And the BBC could be the same, plus all the extra income they, they bring in. But e- either way, however the BBC is funded, it is very, very thinly stretched. and has made a decision to be that. Yeah. There are a lot of R's in the BBC that, frankly, I would cut, but whatever. That means that there isn't just a huge pool of money to go into Doctor Who. However, the one thing I'll say is that a separate production company managing the finances could be advantageous in that Mm. situation Mm. but also the other good thing is that russell t davies has proved that if he has to do a lower budget series he can write a lower budget series yes something Mm. like midnight for Mm. example is a very very cheap show to have made and is very very well written i very much doubt that it's a sin particularly challenge the budget of the production company making that it was a Pretty straightforward, smallish cast, all locations. The
1: music rights probably cost more than the <laughs> body. <laughs> you <know>? That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah.
3: But, but I mean, I mean, I mean yeah. you know, it, it's a scene doesn't work because of like, oh my God, look at the money they spent on this. No,
1: it's actual drama. It works because of the, the characters. And are the characters, exactly right. And also the music. Uh, yeah, absolutely um, right. The, the
3: same with A Very English Scandal. Yeah, by the time you paid for... You haven't been wishing for yeah. got no money left. But mm. a- again, that works because of Davey's writing. <laughs> yeah. And you look at Red Dwarf. You know, I think some of the best episodes of Red Dwarf are the ones where it's two or three actors against a couple of very cheap flats yeah. just saying really good funny dialogue. Yeah,
2: correct. Bottle episodes of the goodies. The bottle episodes exactly. of the goodies. Some yep. of the
3: best episodes of the goodies. So yep. I think that we sitting in this room could be very interested in a show like that if the money was tight mm.
2: so, so are you then back at the model where you have you know, the other two in the two set entirely in the studio so you can then have the three where you go out on extensive locations.
3: It's very very possible you I think RTD is the perfect showrunner to do mm. a couple of really good confined bottle episodes and then because you, you do need to have a bit of money to splash around for a modern audience it needs to look good
2: you can't do Doctor Who sort of cheap and cheerful like you used to. I mean, the audiences now have an expectation that you are going to have a, and a set production standard. So, yeah, maybe you are back to that. Uh, and indeed, what well, they did in the old days, you know, you yeah, the two, had the two in the studio.
3: You watched that first series of Merlin that really sort of yep. fi- filled in Doctor Who's budget and, and slot for well, while the show was on hiatus for a year during the tenner years. And it was really obvious when you watched that show that there were a couple of here's Merlin and Arthur locked in, a, locked in a cell just having a conversation or whatever. <laughs> but also, as you watch them, you could go, here is this episode's special effect. Yep. Yes. And it was just so, so obvious. They go, right, you have this much money to do a cool special effect every year. Uh, we'll give you for the series two or three shots of John Hurt as the dragon, and we'll just slot them into every episode. Yep. But, oh, look, here's the special effect for this week. Here's the special effect for yep. this week. And yep. it, and that's something the show, again, is it, you know mm. could could do. We'll just go, right, we're going to give you one monster every episode. Or if that's a monster-free one, you get two in that one.
1: Well, I think the next 18 months are going to be very interesting for the program going forward. And speaking of Chris Chibnall and his era, we're going to talk about now the top three deaths of Doctor Who. Now, it's time for our top three segments, the uh, top three deaths in Doctor Who. Not as what Richard was telling me before, off Mike, Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall's era. You say this? No, 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 I I find it hard to believe. All right, so, Dave, I'd like to uh, ask you what your number three uh, top death in Doctor Who is. And before we start, basically, obviously we'll hear each other's uh, contributions, and if anybody has the same, we'll call that a snap. Yes, And we can all talk about why we've snapped them, as it were. So, uh,
3: Dave, over to you. So, my number three is one that isn't the most dramatic or the most memorable in some ways, but I just find it absolutely amusing and very, very funny, but also kind of effective and and different for Doctor Who. And that is The Death of Osgood. Yay! In The Seeds of Death. Oh,
1: yes, that Osgood. Oh. I
3: thought the other one. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no. Thought, yes, that's where I thought I you all excited were excited
4: too.
3: Now, this is, I just find this sort of really interesting and funny and memorable because Osgood's a technician, he's gone to work for the day, the T-MAT's up to his workplace on the moon base, and then an evil race of killer aliens look take over. And they say to him, right, we need to, you to use the t to help us invade your planet. Now, he does what any good patriotic human would do at that point, and he goes along and sabotages the machine. He then turns around to the Ice Warriors, these evil alien things, and with a wonderful shit-eating grin, says to them, Oh, the machine's broken. Oh, that's so unfortunate. Oh, what a shame. And exactly what you'd want him to do, and in television we know that that sort of behaviour is always rewarded. At that point, point, of he's grinning and he's looking very clever, Lord Slar says you have deliberately sabotaged the apparatus. Kill him! And there's this wonderful look of, hang on, that wasn't meant to happen," <laughs> <laughs> And he just gets brutally slaughtered. And just the way that they subvert the tropes of the genre, because yeah. as I say, that sort of thing is usually meant to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And they get to be the character that goes on and becomes the hero. Instead, it's the guy who's like, no, 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 I'll do it. I'll, I'll fix it for you. I'll help you invade the planet, who does get to live at least until part six, yeah. who, who, who goes on. The way that the actor who does it does it does it really well. It's one of two very very memorable deaths for him in Doctor Who. I don't know if it's coming up later on in the uh, in the episode, but just I just think as a slightly um, more amusing one, I had to have him Osgood from the Seeds of Death.
1: I was hoping you'd say Osgood for the new series, but let's uh, just you know they're both dead anyway. Uh, that, is, that that's actually quite funny actually because it's actually the really good sort of mirror on effect. Off they go. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's a pretty good effect actually. Richard, you're number three. Well. As way of a lead-in, I took this more
2: as, yeah, the deaths that really stood out. Yeah. For me the, the deaths that make you go, hmm um, <laughs> <laughs> As as opposed to, you know, the big special effect that kills the red shirt to introduce the monster or whatever. Yeah. Um so I've actually gone for I've gone for one out and out classic, um, but I've also gone for two slightly out of the box ones. So my first out-of-the-box one, um it's actually a new series death, and it's from Human Nature and the Family of Blood. And it's actually the moment we don't actually technically see the death, but it's the moment where the scarecrows grab the little girl. Mm. And the reason I chose that is because it did sort of make me do the woo at the time, because it's one of the very, very rare occasions where Doctor Who shows something bad happening to a child. Mm. Um, I mean, mm. look. There are other instances. Obviously, in Remembrance of the Daleks is probably the the, the standout
3: one.
1: And but, that series we can't mention anymore. Torchwood did that children. Of mm, Earth, that, no, that's child, true. That actually, actually that was actually very yeah, traumatic. When they found out that yeah. Kevin yeah, Jack's
3: nephew went seventy three. Yes.
1: <laughs> 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 yes. Uh, um, yeah. yes <laughs> but
3: it, it was one that sort
2: of made me do the oh okay at the time you, you've actually gone there kind of thing. That was my choice for that
3: one because it was was quite a usually sort of go that dark to be honest. Yeah, one that floated around in my mind as well, just briefly, was when the family gets killed in the Stolen Earth. Yes. And, and again, that's a family with two young kids. Well, I thought about that We're, we're too, not doing yeah. what the you Daleks tell us, we're going inside. And again, you don't see the two primary school age kids get exterminated, no. but given their entire house was vaporised, they just killed two young kids. Yep. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I had a similar view and that, that did almost make my list.
1: Yep. I might you come back to this whole death in New Who subject later on because I did what, have a you've now got to think of one. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, because I couldn't think of one. That was a problem. So we'll come back to that. I think there is a topic to have there, yes. Yes, yes. absolutely.
1: So look well, nobody um,
2: dies in New Who, so
1: Well Everybody exactly. lives right everybody Exactly. Lives. We'll, we'll talk about this. Uh, we'll talk about this later. So but um, right. look, my number three is from uh, Case of Andrezzoni Part Four, uh, the death of uh, General Chalak. There's the so many one. there to choose from. There's so many deaths in that show. But basically, you know, he confronts Shara's deck, first of all. He actually gets to meet him in the flesh. Jack rips off the mask, shows him his natural beauty. Calls him a stinking awful. Look at me, whatever it was. And then basically he throws him out the door. And then the mud just comes (laughs) sweeping him away. Which is really the Doctor Who equivalent of that episode in Spooks where she put, gets a hand, put the hand fire, the head, and yes. then gets shot. Yes. So really,
3: that's actually quite a... Um, yes. He wasn't having a very good <laughs> afternoon, General like I do admit, as a group that quite likes their um, dramatic, very cold deaths, the... Uh Bye, Krelpa. Oh, yes. Bye I, I
1: thought I'd have made the list. Yes, bye, Krelpa. So many good deaths in that story. That sounds terrible to to say, but... Uh, Dave, you number two, please, sir.
3: My number two is one that I'm not quite sure why it sticks in their memory, but it does very much stick in my memory, and that is Mike Smith in Remembrance of the Daleks. Oh, yes. When I went back to sort of watch it again... First of all, you've got a character that is built up as being a pseudo-companion for the story. They're actually built up as being a bit of a love interest for, for mm-hmm. Ace in the story. Yep. Then it turns out that he's involved with a neo-Nazi. He's actually not a good person. And we go through that whole sort of betrayal thing. Mm-hmm. Then the moment when he's just killed by the young Supreme Dalek girl, is actually really quite vicious. Mm. He just opens the door, she grins at him, and he's just thrown back into the steps and completely gone. You know? yeah. it, it is that thing that they write about in Target novels, you know, the life was smashed from him. Mm. And, and, and it really looks like it on the screen. But what then happens is you have the rest of the story goes on, and after the Supreme Dalek's dead and the girl is back to her normal senses, it cuts back to Mike Smith's body, On the floor Mm -hmm. and says, "This is this is still like he's still dead. You know he's not saved now." And then we get a funeral service. Yes. And so for me, that really sort of brought home this idea of the corruption that the Daleks and and the corruption that fascist ideology brings to, you know, someone who should have been a good person. Mm -hmm. Now Mike could have been a good person, but he's been corrupted by fascism by the Daleks. He's then been killed brutally, and we've lingered on that and. And at the end of the story, his death is the moment where Ace goes, did we do good? Mm. And okay, yeah, we wiped out the Daleks and we saved Earth and all the rest of it, but a lot of people died. And and unlike, you know, maybe, say, Resurrection of the Daleks, where it's really smashed home that lots of people died today, um, there's just this moment of, you know, bad things happened even though we did good. And we're at a funeral. We're at a funeral for a young guy. And so I just think the whole combination of that has always really sat with me. I remember being eight years old and watching it and, and, and listening to that funeral the really good music. For all we say about Kef McCulloch, his music in that funeral scene is really good. Yeah. And yeah. it made an impact on me then. And even now, I, I, I feel chills mm. just just thinking about that character and what happened.
1: And I think maybe it sounds, sounds a bit blasé, but you know, actually having a funeral for a character that you just seen dying... Because a lot of death in he, Doctor Who he he basically shows a problem too. Yeah. Because with, with his mum. That's exactly it. Like, yeah, yes. his,
3: his mum is walking into the church yeah. to and, bury her son. Yeah, and be yeah. helped by because uh, a lot a of woman.
2: it is yeah. it's just they dead move on. Yeah.
3: yeah, it's a really good choice, Dave. Thank you, Richard.
2: Your
1: number two, please.
2: Number two. It's actually two deaths, and I'll explain why. Oh, God. Again, going with the idea of the death that sort of made me go, good thing you mentioned Resurrection of the Daleks, <laughs> um, because I went for the guy who's just minding his own Ooh. business, metal detecting yes. down on the, and, and he's just Blind basically around. murdered by yeah. Lytton's guards. Yeah. And the other one that pairs with that um, is the death of Oscar Bocherby in The Two Doctors. Yes. And the reason I chose those two is because they did stand out for me at the time. And I think there is an argument that those two deaths really encapsulate Eric Saywood's world view. <laughs> I
1: was going to say vision. Yes,
2: I, I, I think of you know about how he you know treated the violence and the sort of almost social Darwinism. I think really of um, mm. of, the uni- of the universe he saw Doctor Who existing in because they're both really nasty. Particularly in the case of Oscar Botchwick, they're, they're both just utterly pointless. Yeah. Um. And I uh, just, you know, <laughs> stab. You're dead because you upset me. To the Top comic deal. belief character. Yes. Yeah.
3: Who, who, who also doesn't die instantly? There's like the whole watching him yes. bleed out. Yeah. Look after my moths. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. But yeah. but it is it is actually really brutal and nasty. You have acidized my stomach juices. Stab. It's um,
1: not needed, is it? No, it's, mean, not. It's,
2: it's not. It's totally. No. I mean, look, there are other deaths in, in both of those stories. I mean, there's there's the bit where the um, Professor Laird tries to escape and he's just gunned down, as she tries to run out the and door and yes.
3: yes. yeah. scream. Um, yes,
2: at You've got all the stuff that the soldier with his face being melted away on the on the space station.
3: So I saw all of these stories at about five or six or seven. Yeah. The guy with his face melting, I didn't care about, because it was TV, yeah. and stuff like that happens on TV. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, Professor Lead and just the, the blood-curdling, painful, yeah. desperate scream, and Oscar Botchaby just taking time to slowly pull away. They are two that, as a kid, were yeah. sort of like, this is, this is real death. This isn't yeah. space death. No, no, it's not yeah. a
2: big special effect or a big gribbly monster coming along and doing... No. I mean, you've also got the Doctor Murdering Shock Eye, basically, later in the Oh, yes. And then make in, in that the two quick, doctors. you know, yeah. you're
1: my just desserts or something Yeah, like that. so,
2: yeah. as I said, but I think you you are really getting, I think, Eric Sayward's world view, <laughs> I think, through the prism of those two pets. So, I think he was a happy man, was he? <laughs> well, what did,
1: what did we say? Only hate keeps me alive. <laughs> keeps me alive, but... Um, <laughs> I, I thought oh, I'd put the vengeance on Varus acid scene, but, no, but it's just, like, well, everybody talks about that, you know, because yeah. it is quite. But again, you get the doctor makes a little quick and,
3: and makes it all better.
1: It's like a Bond film.
3: But, but again, for me as a kid, that was a TV death. Yeah. Mm. It was death by special effect, and, mm. and that never affected me. It's, mm. it's real stuff and like, yeah. people really feeling like human suffering that gets you as a kid. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. Well, look, my number two choice is um, the part six of The Seed of Doom, where Mr. Harrison Chase, Esquire, being fed to the compost machine. Of course, firstly, what he does is put Sarah in it, and he just presses a button, and he's just watching it casually. There's Mm. no emotion in in the guy. And then, of course, Tom just bursts through the door, and all of a sudden, pulls Sarah out, a bit of a kerfuffle, and then... Chase goes in after,
2: no, after they put the unit guy through there. Oh yes, but you know yeah. he, he's, he, he's an extra, so does he matter? He doesn't matter
3: <laughs> indulged, it right? wasn't Sergeant an intention. No. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> no, exactly right. Yeah.
1: But basically, yes, Chase gets sucked into the machine, and it's so oh, that realization of horror towards the end. It's like, oh my god, I'm being pulled through the machine, and they just they, all you hear is the whirring of the mm. macho, mincer, as it were. Yep. Now, if it was Eric were doing it, Beans. there would have been blood that would have been like letters of sound screen. effects. It would yeah. have been it, blood and bone all over the yeah. place but all it is is a simple cut and that's it. Which I think is quite well, confronting. You know? yeah. and, and to the, be honest...
3: The close-up of Chase's face... Yes. ...cut to the Doctor's reaction... ...and then just that cut back to the machine. Yes. And you just go, okay. And
1: really, Harrison Chase was the inventor of a grinder. Boom! Hey!
3: Hey! I, I have to say, Scorby's death in that is also very... Oh, yes. Because they, they take the time, they give him a proper death. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it
1: was like, uh, villain, redemption, then death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was my number two. Dave, number your number one. one.
3: My number one is one that is, I think, the most vicious and memorable in the show, and that is Sarah Kingdom at the end of The Daleks Master Plan. Oh, nice choice. First of all, this is a companion who, although she's only in one story, has been with us now for eight or nine weeks. Mm. So that's three months in which the audience has got to know her, and Mm. they've been through the hijapes of the Feast of Stephen, they've seen her save the Doctor from the Meddling Monk, and she's a proper companion. Mm. And then... Because this is such an epic story, it needs to have an epic ending, and it does. Of all the occasions, you know, we talk about flux and the key to time and trial. That after many, many weeks, this don't necessarily la- nail the landing. Yeah, Dalek's master plan after 13 weeks nails the landing. Yes, mm. absolutely. And part of that is, first of all, the Doctor is there. He's carrying the Time Destructor back. He's suffering, and the Doctor is in pain, and the Doctor falls down and collapsed. Sarah Kim goes out to help him. Now, by this stage, all through it, you've got the of the time destructor just yeah. going just like that then you get the winds going up the yeah. big special sound effects and then Sarah starts to scream then you cut to her aging her face breaking up she falls down she turns to dust and you still mm-hmm. just got the the present yeah. sound effect the wind the doctor howling in distress it is as grim and dark as the show ever is i think it is as nasty and painful a death as the show ever had. And to do it to a companion, Mm. I think, really, really elevates that. And that must have been amazing and terrifying to watch Mm. when that went out in Mm. 1966. Yeah, that's a really good choice, actually. And in that story earlier had
1: Katarina's flying out of an airlock, a character who really wasn't made no real impact apart from being sucked into space.
3: And Katarina's done with cuts. You see her reach for the button, they cut to Stephen's face, Mm. you hear the sound effect, you stay on Stephen's face. Yes. We don't actually see the moment of Katharina's death. No. Whereas Sarah Kingdom, we, we watch her age to death. Yeah, that's a great... In pain, yeah. yeah. That's a great selection, well, we actually. Well,
2: could if, you know. <laughs> well, funny you should mention it.
1: Hello, mate. Hello. Block <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. In Wigan with a verve. Now... Richard, you number uno. Well, this one I've gone is an out-and-out
2: classic and it is one that really made an impact on me when I saw it as an eight-year-old. You can probably guess where this might be going.
1: Tom and the Raleigh part one. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want me to have a guess?
2: Yeah, go on.
3: I am the servant of C-Tech. Yes. Thank
2: oh. you. I bring SUTEC's gift to of death to all, to all humanity. Because it's a practical effect of them piping the smoke up through his jacket. It is a great special effect. It, look, it is a special effect, but it's a practical effect. And it is really nasty. And look, I I've said before that Pyramids of Mars was the first, you know, that really blew me away when I was a young kid watching it. And that death has stuck with me ever since. I will put out a call out, and I know we've talked about this one before too, to Dr. Warlock when he gets killed in the next episode. Again, you don't actually see that. But he really does that convincing... Shit. I'm about to be killed really really well but absolute terror yes mm. but yes no I did go with yes I am the true servant of Sutech he needs no other because that is an amazing cliffhanger as well yeah, yeah.
3: Neiman's screams just merging into the yep. incidental yeah that is really really powerful
1: that's a really good one actually well done that's actually my honourable mentions listening to you you guys selections I'm actually going oh, it wasn't a bit boring really but uh, what, it is <laughs> it is actually
2: I've actually <laughs> wrote Shock part 4 okay. oh, I actually had that as an honourable mention because, yeah. uh, look, I was a bit older. I was, what, I been mean, 12 or 13. <laughs> you were know. laughing. No. no, I wasn't <laughs> laughing, but look, I've probably never had the thing about Adric was a character for me. But I do remember when I watched Earthshock when it was screened here first on TV, sort of being like, oh, wow. And then you get the silent credits and yeah. um, whatever to, to sort of reinforce the fact that, hang on, this this guy's just,
1: you
3: know. Exactly. Right. It's Pixel, well, so we'll let you do yeah, it. yes, No,
1: it's no. all right. It's far, yeah, but you've actually encapsulated what it was it's taken 18 pages about. to write. Ah! So basically, you know, for me it was again the re- the first realization of a, a companion or I mm. remember the doctors in our party can die because the doctor mm. has a, essentially a get out of jail card where, you know, they've got the castrati in the background, the up he goes. It's called plot armour. <laughs> I like that. A lot of people bag Matthew Waterhouse, but I actually quite like him as a character. Spotted little teenagers, mm. we sort of identified with him. I certainly
3: did. As somebody was a bit younger, I certainly Yeah,
1: did. absolutely. And just him holding Vash's little rope thing there, mm. this realisation he's got no hope. You know, you see the Doctor frantically trying to get the console to work, which never really worked anyway. And then, all he of a sudden... Wasn't trying, no, he wasn't love. No, he <laughs> was. And then he's just gone. As yep. a young boy, that was quite traumatic. And it was funny, he used to go to like Doctor Who club meetings. And when they show that clip, I suppose the adults in the room would start and cheer and things like that. Well, yeah, and you okay. know... Dumb sheep, I think,
2: Dave called yeah, yeah. It, uh, <laughs> one, of I really. one of them. <laughs>
1: and one of them, you know, over the silent credits, Actually overdubbed the Monty Python theme but the over you know what I mean? You know, but um, for me, it made it, you know, it was a dramatic impact. Yep. And that was really like, oh shit, you know, things could mm. actually go wrong. And I think if actually a similar impact would have been Nicola Bryant, if they actually kept her dead mm. in trial, that would have had the same sort of ramifications really and the impact. Mm. But of course they copped it out, you know, because she knocked it out of the park yeah, in yeah. terms of performance. So I was yeah. going to
3: raise the point, had... Perry actually died in trial, yeah. she absolutely would have made my list. That is, that is a chilling, horrible, death. Is. chilling death.
2: So does that lead us, just before we do our mentions, does that sort of give us that segue into the nobody dies in the new series type discussion? Because, I mean, we've discussed before, had they killed Clara, yes. and probably had they killed Bill, yes. and had they actually written Rose out... Um, rather than giving her her own David Tennant sex doll. <laughs> um, I, I think much, far more memorable exits.
3: Look, it's something we've discussed before on Footage of the Doomsday, at these, mm. these sort of things. The violence and death you could get away with when we were kids, you simply can't get away with now. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's a new series versus old series thing. No. I think it's a modern television versus old television thing. Yeah. And, and again, I think about... You know, one of the cartoons that I really loved when I was about five was Astro Boy. Oh, yes. And some of the deaths in that are brutal. (laughs) Yes. Um, There's there's an episode, and The Cities of Gold was, again, when I was eight or nine, was absolutely my favourite TV series at the time. The final episode of that is after two seasons, the main character finally finds his dad, Mm. who then has a horrible, painful death saving the world. Mm. And I just remember as a kid being like, oh, just absolutely like... Mm. Blown away by that, yeah. Um, But but again, you know, Astro Boy is the one where I still think of some of the deaths in that now, and I go like, "Wow, Atlas's death in Astro Mm. Boy—that is a phenomenally well-done death for that character." Yeah. And I was watching it a couple of, well, maybe last year, and even as an adult, I'm going, "That's really impressively done." As a kid, Mm. like watching this recurring character who's finally redeemed himself and his Astro's brother and all this stuff go and sacrifice himself to save. Um, to save the earth sorry after watching like a massacre of the population of the, of the earth from the alien invaders I was watching that at five and thinking it was brilliant mm. shocking but brilliant it's not exactly Pepper Pig
1: I sort of wrote in our little chat group I said because I was really struggling in terms yeah. of death and New who Anything that sort of made an impact with me, and I thought, well, anyone I can say, vaguely remember is Linda with the Dalek, sort of hovers and yep. you know silently says, don't don't know, know, "I'm coming." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of you can see that. I thought that window. was actually really yeah. good, but I mean, you're right. I mean, you who basically just either gives them a second chance, you know, the, the last of the Time Lords, where they wiped that out of 10% of the population, wherever it was, all, all of a sudden he pulls back the uh, mm. the lever and off. It's mm. just reset.
3: Cop out. The one that stood out for me in You Who, and it's not really an individual death, so I couldn't put it in there, is the scene of the scarecrows attacking the school
4: yeah. at the end of human nature. Yeah.
3: Where, where, again, suddenly these boys who have been trained to get ready to go to war, fucking death is an abstract concept now see that death mm. is a real thing. Mm. And, and their emotional reaction to that yes. is really, really powerful. Yeah. Uh, that's the one that lasted. I know for some people, Kylie being killed uh, and sort of going off the cliff with the weird robot man at the end of Voyage of the Damned is one. I, I, uh, it didn't really register for me, but that that was one where they did actually kill a pseudo-companion and it stuck. Yeah, so I'll, suppose, I'll point yeah. that out. But then out, she
1: become uh, a star and... Go oh, off I into the know. galaxy or something. I I just, there was a gold short pants. But I don't know. Yeah. I just, yeah. I look, again, it's just, you're right, it either romanticizes it or. Mm. But, but that's, that's
4: not
3: new who, that's television.
1: Yeah. Well, no wonder he's gone all soft these days, isn't it, really? <laughs> anyway, so look, I've got some honorable mentions. Calling this one Disco Inferno. This that guy from Resurrection of Daleks, where he's shot, he just waves his hand <laughs> in the air, sort of goes well, back, and, back and forward a little bit. Actually, speaking of Inferno,
2: one I did have, a, well, it is a cool death. It's actually, well, it's Roy Scammell. When he oh, comes yes, off the that's town, awesome. which yeah. was, I think, for many years, still the highest fall, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, that's in, in, pretty cool. in Britain, and that—that that is an amazing shot, yeah. When he it comes, is. and that sound effect, and yeah. then you hear the cardboard, yeah, yeah. you don't want to. <laughs> uh, this one I'm calling Radio Gaga, which is a minor for Mark of the Rani, where basically the Rani presses the button, he goes <laughs> like that. <laughs> i um, we were
2: going to go with Viking
1: Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Come fly with me, which is the the soldier from uh, Remembrance of Darks Part One, where basically oh, yes. he flies through the air and they pull him the, back the and he just back. hits yep. the uh, Corregator uh, tip tipping, yep. which is very similar to the Mike Smith, really. But
3: yeah, it, it, it is. And and again, I think I remember all of us were fans at the time watching that, and all of us, I think that death and that effect is the moment we go, wow, this this is going to be a really good story. Mm. Like that. Yeah. Particularly having, watched, some money on particularly this having year. watched season 24, yes. going straight into Rembrandts of the Daleks the yeah, yeah. as the Odyssey did. That special effect is a moment Absolutely go. Ooh. Ooh, oh. Oh, wow. okay. What's happened yep. here? Yeah. Yep.
4: <laughs>
1: yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last one I had was actually a snap of yours, Richard. The, um, the, the I call it Ice Ice Baby. I bring Sutec's gift of death or human life with the dry ice. just washes around him. It's yep. getting you know, get the shoulder up It's fantastic. Yeah, it it's is. great. Good stuff. I had
2: Adric on mine as well. Yeah. Um and, and the Royce Gamble one I just did. But um, the other one I had, and it's from The Dalek Invasion of Earth. I remember the first time I watched it on VHS, and it happens off screen, but there's that moment, it's in about part four, I think it is, where Susan and David are sort of sitting there and he's consoling her, and then they just hear this bloke who's cornered by the Daleks, um, who sort of screams, you know, you've taken everything from me, you've killed my wife, you've killed my child, you've killed all my family, you know, I've got nothing left to live for you, and then the Daleks just gun him down. Yes, um,
3: that is a brutal one. That that, yeah. that that was one I thought about, along with the brother who has to kill his robot Oh yes, at oh, the yes. end of that one, which is very nasty. They they were two nasty ones I had on my potential list. Uh, the one that I also had on my list that hasn't been mentioned, and and I couldn't quite justify it, but it is very memorable. Um, it is both very dramatic and very. Well done, but also kind of funny and it's the No! Not that Twitch! Ah! <laughs> well, I guess if you Could... go down that path, you sort of got solid yeah. My dreams it's of conquest. <laughs> but look, the thing I love about Kerensky is sort of the way he sort of twists himself. It's kind yeah. of it's kind of funny and it's kind of shocking, but it's the it's the cut to the close up of Tom Chadman doing the <gasps> it just makes
1: it. It's nearly as good as that one in Timelash, where basically uh, no you know no what's his name Borad. and all of a sudden presses a little laser and then all of a sudden you see the age, and the skeleton just goes Burr. oh <laughs> Paul Darrow just on the donk donk yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> look, there's the
3: Paul Darrow skeleton and there's also that guy who he's a good actor in other stuff but in time you know, Borad, I have been loyal yes. to you yes <laughs> it's
1: awful I know it's just, yeah, it's just
3: awful ham yeah it's awful but uh, there you go so look thank you guys it was really uh, interesting that- you no know, Mark it's a real shame that Rob isn't with us today because look Rob is a big fan of the horror genre. Rob likes his death. Mm. Let's be honest, so it's a shame that Rob isn't here. To- What's that sound? Sleigh bells. No, <laughs> it's... What's that up on the scanner?
0: Honestly, this time, eddy is no good for my stomach. Someone really deserves a smacked bottom for it. Or, learn how the horizontal control works. Anyway, the good-looking one has asked me to emerge from the time winds to offer my thoughts on the top three deaths. You ghouls, you, in Doctor Who. In third place, not sure whether it is catering to the Snowflake new series generation that makes the new series sadly lacking in memorable deaths. Don't tell the kiddies that dying is the ultimate get-out-of-jail card, people. But it is true that the new series doesn't have as many eye-catching or thought-provoking deaths, unless death by special effects during a regeneration counts. It doesn't, by the way. I've given myself some wriggle room by pointing to the ghastly fate of the family of blood as a workaround in this instance, to cater to said snowflakes. Putting aside the Doctor's unusually nasty method of disposing of them all, this is hardly an exercise in promoting family values, I must say. The perpetual hell he inflicts on all four members is definitely a fate worse than death, so there's something in that for everyone, I suppose. The oddest is condemning the son to being a forever scarecrow which has the virtue of mirroring the truly terrible fate inflicted on a character in the League of Gentlemen series who is slipping it to Farmer Tinsel's wife. The moral of this story is, well, there isn't one, other than being an alien intent on killing people at a boys' school and getting a jolly well-deserved comeuppance as a result. And don't slip it to anyone, either, you degenerate creatures. Coming in at second place is Stein. Hello, boys! Just in time for the fun. In deciding which side he was on, Stein, in a bit of campy good fun as he greets the Daleks, delightfully undercuts the gloom-laden events in Resurrection of the Daleks. That's one S and three R's, by the way. Stein's struggle to determine his own destiny, free of the control the Daleks have imposed upon him, demonstrates the essential nature of Doctor Who. Well, at least in my interpretation. That every single life has value, and nothing is more valuable to life than the freedom to choose your own path. Which, probably means, I've just argued that even the life of a Dalek is worth saving. Up is down and black is white, you degenerates! Anyway, in Sacrificing His Life, Stein exemplifies the best traits of humanity the desire for a witty one-liner after being shot by a Dalek and falling on the self-destruct button aside. And coming in at first place, it's Scorby from The Seeds of Doom. Nigel Farage would have liked Scorby because Scorby would have voted for Brexit. The every-man-for-himself ethos that infuses the Brexit movement beats true in the heart of Mr Chase's number one thug. Indeed, Scorby is popular amongst fans because he's our thug. The Doctor's unwilling ally in the fight for survival against the crinoid as it extends its influence across Chase's estate. Scorby's sarcasm, his acid tongue, his willingness to use his fists to get the job done make him something more than the usual aggressive stooge in the show. And someone I look to for inspiration once leaving time is called at the pub on a cold Friday night and the patrons spill out onto the wet pavement for a good vomit or fight, let's be frank. But that just makes his death way more impactful. The show is replete with faceless characters going to their dooms, but since Scorby has more character than most, his desperation in fleeing and being dragged under and drowned feels like someone you'd know albeit someone likely to punch you in the face, bed your missus while you recuperated, and emptied your bank account on the way out the door, dying in your arms. It's sad, really. You goddamn degenerates. Oh no, here comes the time, Eddie. See you on the other side!
1: And now it's time for our Target Book Club. This year we've uh, chosen the subject, uh, I'm calling it One Hit Wonders, or... One Night Stands Well basically Novels were written By their author Who only wrote One book The Target series I've chosen Enlightenment
3: By Barbara Clegg Dave chose uh, I chose with the help Of a Twitter poll <laughs> Remembrance of the Daleks By Ben Aronovich <laughs> Richard hopefully Galaxy 4, Ems did actually
2: write
1: one of the Choose Your Own Adventure Doctor Who books. Again, not a target novelisation. <laughs> and uh, hopefully robbed a chosen silver nemesis. So I'd like to throw it over to maybe Richard first. You go first to talk about Galaxy 4. Well, yes. It's it, a book, it, thank it, you. It has a red cap. No.
2: <laughs> I did choose Galaxy 4 by William Ems. Galaxy 4, look probably doesn't have the greatest reputation, probably. Well, in the... certainly
1: not now
4: after the animation, no.
2: no. <laughs> well, I actually was coming to that, sort of in the pantheon of Doctor <laughs> Who. I don't think the animation did a lot, probably to enhance his reputation, <laughs> as it was a bit ordinary. But look, there's no telly snaps Um, The one surviving episode's a little bit uninspiring, I'm sorry, Peter Purvis, but you do see a realm. I bought this when it came out about 1985, and I certainly read it then. I don't (laughs) think I've read it since. It was a whole new adventure for me, really, in some ways. Mm. Um, I actually enjoyed it more than I was expecting to, because I really, as I said, didn't have the greatest opinion of Galaxy 4 coming in. William Eames has actually done a reasonably good job of of sort of adding to and embellishing the story a bit. He hasn't quite gone sort of the, the Donald Cotton... Route route oh, yeah. other, just, or, just read a whole new story. Yes, yeah. or, or the John Luca Rotti thing, where he just, <laughs> oh, well, this is what I wanted to do. But he takes the time, sort of, to build and he adds some stuff for the characters' motivations and what they're thinking. One of the things with Galaxy 4 was it was originally written for Ian and Barbara. So, and when the thing went into production, I, I think Peter Purvis wound up with a lot of Barbara's lines, which he was somewhat unhappy with. They have taken the time here to, to make Stephen a bit more argumentative and, and probably the slightly more you know cynical character that we know. Vicky also gets some quite good uh, material here. We do have some... Thoughts inside the Doctor's head. Here he he doesn't really trust the Dravens right away. And indeed we even get inside the heads of the Rills. Where they're looking out through their sort of murky window and they see this strange being with the white hair in front of them and and trying to work out who he is and where he is. Probably does go a little overboard in some ways because there is... Bit where the doctor's thinking about his body wearing a bit thin, and it does actually indicate that this is not his first incarnation. So, oh, no. yeah, so this is another continuity gap waiting to be filled by somebody. <laughs> Rhoden <sure. laughs> Morbius all over again. Yeah, the timeless <laughs> children. Oh dear. Yeah, but um, it is a really good retelling of the story. Again, look, it's not the greatest story. It probably doesn't really sustain four episodes. I think when you watch it on TV. But uh, look, at 120 pages, this was a quite entertaining, if if slightly unchallenging read. But I actually thought he did a really good job of bringing this to
1: life. Has the story gone up in your estimations from reading it? Or is it basically well, still well, languishing at the bottom of the polls? No,
2: look, I think had this version been what was on TV or what was in the animation, it probably, I would think, a bit more highly of it. Mm-hmm. In the animation, it is a boring runaround, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get a lot out of the animation at all.
1: Did um, you watch it in colour or black and white? I, I don't know. Maybe that. it was a problem, because Dave just watched a bit on black and white before yeah. we got here. And actually, I said, yeah, it actually looks a lot better. Maybe I should have watched uh, it in black and white. Yeah, I, I,
3: look, I must have been watching it over the last couple of days. The first half literally is just the cast walking between the three ships. There's mm. nothing else that happens. At least once they get to the real ship, stuff it does, does start happen. to happen. It's not a lot of stuff. It's not a very complicated plot. Mm. But it, it has at least got that alien world and alien yes. cultures
2: that the it does that is actually probably something that is embellished and is a really good embellishment and look it is something also I think that's been embellished in the animations wouldn't know because there's no tele-snaps um, at the end where the world is actually destroyed on the soundtrack it's really just some rumbling and you know you don't really get much of a sense of what's happening at all but here you actually, um, he talks about, you know, the sun starting to go out of orbit and the, the fishes starting to appear and Margo watches her people die, um, you know, and then she is really just waiting for, you know, when it's her turn, realising there's absolutely nothing she can do. Mm. Um, so, which, which was a, probably a much better ending, I think, than we got anywhere else. Mm. Uh, uh, obviously it doesn't have the lead into Mission to the Unknown, <laughs> no. but I actually think this is quite a good story. Probably didn't make me reevaluate Galaxy 4, but... Um,
1: I was certainly entertained reading it. Would you recommend uh, somebody picking it up and giving it a go?
2: I think it would be good to read maybe for a slightly different take on the story. Look, it's not one of the best target novels. If you just want to you know, recommend a target novel for somebody to read, there are much better target novels than this. But mm-hmm. I think as a retelling of the story, it, it, it does an admirable job.
1: Fair enough. Now, speaking of one of the best target novels, Dave your uh, legions of fans, you put a Twitter poll up, and again, my Russian bots didn't work, Richard, and didn't go through my selection. Uh, However, Dave, you were lucky enough to, uh, your your followers selected Remembrance of the Daleks
3: for you, so take it away, Dave, what did you think about it? Yeah, so I was a little bit disappointed when Remembrance of the Daleks won about 68% of the poll, (laughs) because I thought I might read something that I wasn't quite as familiar with,
4: because
3: I think... Most people would rate *Remembrance of the Daleks* as one of the the top, if not the top, oh, yes. target novel. Yes. So coming back to it, there were definitely a lot of very good points about it. It certainly does do that thing that a lot of those later McCoy stories do. Which is to expand the story out. I, I should say at the outset, it's 160 pages rather ah, than the old 128. Yeah, and the font does seem to be a little smaller. So yeah, there there is <laughs> the la- destiny of the Dalek It's size. not destiny <laughs> of the Dalek size. And, 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 and again, by this stage, obviously, the target production house is given the old authors the latitude to have a longer page count yeah. and a larger word count, which is obviously very helpful. There are a lot of little bit of. Uh, mythos making things that go in there we get for example Davros remembering back to when the accident happened and they sort of you know right. had a 68% probability he'll choose suicide over going on and, mm. and all that That's sort right. of they thing. they give him the switch they give right. him the, the switch yeah that you know he can continue or take his own life and he yep. remembers that they have little extracts from the history of the Daleks they have the moment of the special weapons Dalek and its background where it came That's from right. and yeah. every time it fires radiation floods in and twists its chromosomes and um that stuff's really good there's some stuff that goes inside the heads of the Daleks that did seem very groundbreaking at the time and now it sort of feels a little bit dated some of the terminology that's used it's it's still very good it's good to have the additions there so some of it's very good some of it's a bit fan-wanky some of it I think is not aged as well but that's okay it's still wonderful embellishments the character embellishments probably stood out for me more reading it now than they did when I read the book for the first time at the age of about ten mm. when, again like oh wow they got inside the head of the Dalek and how a Dalek commander thinks and was that was really exciting now it's uh, there's a lot more about sort of Mike Smith's background and his relationship with Radcliffe mm. um, Radcliffe talks That's about right. being interned after Canal Street and all that sort of stuff and Mike talks about his experiences in Singapore and he's you know upset that ace doesn't get why he believes what he believes and Those sort of things. Um, There's there's a romance between Gilmore and Rachel Jensen that weaves its way all the way through the book, which is really interesting. So there's a lot of really good embellishments there. There's a lot better characterization in there. And it tells a really good story that, look, we know is a classic story. Mm. A couple of things that were very interesting to note when I was reading it, a lot of people talk about how the target novels back in the 70s and in the 80s were the way to remember a story and one thing that we notice when you read a lot of terence dicks ones is he goes to a lot of trouble to explain the set to explain the environment to explain what's going on i noticed that actually aronovich doesn't do that much at all and i realized that if i had watched remembrance of the daleks i wouldn't necessarily get as good an idea in all these scenes about what was actually going on the plot's still there the dialogue's still there but he doesn't always take that time to explain what sort of set this is, or how this looks, or how this is set up. It, it's not bad, but it was just a very different take in terms of the right. the, the style of the novels, and reflective of the fact that now the video recorder had been released, and it was mm. now expected that people would watch these. So, so the target yes. novels are are performing a different function. Correct. And that was really obvious. Mm. There, there are, and it's, it's a shame that Rob isn't here because as a as a published author of some experience now. I wanted to sort of talk to Rob about a, a few lines in there where I, I look at them and I sort of think that this is a very early in a writer's career type line and there's a few moments when he sort of goes for a bit of a Douglas Adams style um, take or something um, and that to me I don't think Aronovich would use now, mm. 20, 30 mm. years later in his career. It sort, of, it sort of felt like a young writer trying very hard and occasionally not quite anything. Mm. Uh, but they're just a few lines here and there. Overall, look, it's a very good book. It does add a lot of stuff in there. The, the, the fan wake is is fan wake, but you know, we're fans, so we enjoy mm. it. Mm. The characterisation's good, but it is such a different target novel being made post nine eighty eight. to a lot of what came before it. it's It's almost unfair to compare those post-VHS novels with the previous H. S. novels, was something I yeah. really took out of that. Yeah. But, look, it's it's a shame that Aronovich didn't write more. Mm. Uh, obviously, Mark Platt wrote Battlefield, and, and yes. Mark Platt, from my memory, does a very good job of that. Yeah. And, look, we know that Aronovich has gone on to write a lot more. His contributions to the Virgin New Adventures were controversial. Oh, yes. Uh, transit, transit, particularly. Transit, yes. Uh... And, 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 again, having gone back to Transit not that long ago, there's some really good stuff in Transit, Um Transit's faults are, one, again, you've got a young up-and-coming rider who's just trying a bit too hard to make his mark and occasionally goes a bit too far with Mm. um, pushing the envelope in terms of what's acceptable in who. Yes. And the other thing with Transit is that it, acts. Absolutely reads like a big '90s sci-fi novel. Yeah. Like if you didn't tell someone that was written in about 1992, mm-hmm. they could read that and go, "That's a book written in about 1992." It is so of its era. Yeah. Uh, but look, Arrow, which is a very capable writer, and look, he's made a living from writing. So, yeah. have you? Oh, have you read his London, Is London Burning uh, series? I haven't. My dad, my dad's a fan, and he uh, he like. likes them, does he? Yeah, okay. He does. Yeah. Okay. So on the whole, though, Dave, look, it is a very good target book. Yeah. a Very great. Good... The memory didn't cheat. The memory didn't cheat. My perception of it has changed with age. And again, things that were a big deal to me at the age of 10 mm. were less important now. Mm. Things that I've kind of missed or subtleties or concepts that I missed at the age of 10, I've really grasped onto now. Um, look, it's still a classic story and a very good book. Good stuff. Mark. Excellent.
1: Right. So I chose Enlightenment by Barbara Clegg. So, well, um, Enlightenment
3: was the choice.
1: It was, exactly, it was. Very good, I like that. Um, You know, for years, the common perception was that Mordren and Snake Dance were the highlights of season 20. Mordren got number one in the DWM poll in 1855, I think it was, yeah. Um, However, Enlightenment has has had a a recent... You know, know, Mark,
3: (laughs) sometimes on these podcasts, as you turn your flamethrower of comedy (laughs) and wit and your satirical topicality, it just reaches such a crescendo that it truly becomes... Champagne
1: podcasting. <laughs> like the, there was a the Murray Gold music in the background, just
3: the
1: Anyway, to lift it up, but um, Enlightenment had a uh, a bit of a re-evaluation. is now considered to be the jewel, not King's Diamonds.
2: <laughs> I've actually got a story about the King's Diamonds. Go very on, quickly. go on. When Dave and I were running the local club here the second time, so we're talking
3: around the 50th anniversary. Yeah,
2: around the 50th anniversary, there was a chap who turned up to one of the meetings with a box, like, crate, just full of VHS tapes. It was pretty much a full run of the series.
1: Are these the BBC ones or just home tapes? No, ones? No, no, BBC ones.
2: Really? Yeah. I don't want these. Oh. Um, I thought you could just give them to your members or something. That's nasty. And he just basically dropped the box and walked out. And we sort of put the box up the back and said, <laughs> well, look, at the back of the room and said, well, look, you know, if anybody wants... These will go for it. And it was sort of like watching a plate <laughs> of locusts pretty much just, you know, stacks on into the box. It's Doctor
3: oh, Who fans looking for freebies. It
2: was. Oh, and my God. It was just... And having the...
1: known some of those, people
3: yeah. were not... <laughs> like that, anyway, but, but yeah. Um, when sort
2: of the dust had settled and, you know, the wreckage wreckages... <laughs> down. Body parts were stored. Yeah, before. pretty much. Uh, people had dusted themselves. You know, people had been smashed <laughs> out of the way, dusted themselves off. <laughs> There was still one tape left in the bottom of the box that no one had taken. King's Demons? <laughs> it was oh, there it you was the King's Demons. So, there you go. That is the least
1: popular Doctor <laughs> Who story by empirical evidence. <laughs> <laughs> and, in fact, Richard has bought that as the uh, next prize to give away in the 42 films they got. No, well actually, got it? no what I we did was I
2: actually put it up the front of the room and said, oh, look, if someone wants that, they can take it on the way out. And somebody did, but... The rest of the argument was, where are the postcards? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they're worth a pretty penny now, aren't they? They are,
2: really? oh, I'm sorry, go That's no,
1: fine. That's actually an interesting uh, deviation Delicious. there. But um, basically, you know, in terms of enlightenment, I, I find it really quite odd that Say would commission that type of story given his action adventure, you know, slant on the series. Mm. It's actually quite a novel concept. Um, and it's a, definitely a contrast to some of the more run uh, of the mill adventures of that season. It's hard to believe that actually Barbara Clegg was the only writer, female writer, for Doctor Who until. Rhonda Munro no hold on Leslie Scott basically Paul Erickson said she did nothing
3: I seem to recall that the uh, author of Attack of the Cybermen was a woman
1: well I'm going to get I'm going to get to this well actually Barbara Clegg was the first woman to write for the series Leslie Scott was writing on the coattails of Paul Erickson and did nothing according to Paul and Paula Moore is really Eric Sayward and Ian Levine and drag. So Barbara is actually the first woman to publish an officially sanctioned Doctor Who novel of any type until Ryan Munro came along
2: with uh, Survival. The lady who helped uh, Jerry Davis write Celestial Toymaker. That was in 86. Yes, right, fair enough.
1: And again, Jerry did nothing with that book. He just gave it to Alison because he was boning her. So basically, in terms, <laughs> It's true! <laughs> it's... Thank God the dead can't sue, Mark.
3: Um, so it's basically... Just... Oh, just, just think about that episode of... Um... Good news, but we Jim McCross has this massive launch on um, Robert Askin, and yeah. he's saying, Yeah, Rob, you kids wouldn't remember Robert Askin, but he was the Premier of New South Wales for 10 years mm. and he was massively corrupt. And I can say that on the ABC because he's dead and it's true. <laughs>
1: So basically, you know, Stryker and Mariner were really well portrayed on TV. The book really highlights their uh, eternalness, as it were, that they need ephemerals to exist. And because actually, without them, their interactions are very robotic and, and, and stilted mm. and remote. A nice couple of continuity references in the book for me to fan glaze over. Uh, mentions of Lady Cranley's dress. This was in a TV version, of course. And the coordinator, which uh, wasn't. Um, I'm not too sure if actually these were added in by Barbara Clegg or by or Christine Donahue. i can not too sure who edited this book, but uh, interestingly enough, there are only mentions. If Terence is writing this book. He would have had to give a paragraph in terms of the background, in terms of lady clearingly some black orca, blah blah blah. Yeah. You know, that sort of stuff. If you were reading them casually, you wouldn't notice them. A Couple of differences to notice in a novel. Rack uses several different kinds of crystals and not just red opals that was in the TV versions. The eternals are expanded a lot more than they are in deep greater detail than were on TV. The power chamber of rack ship, it's more of a grid pattern on the floor as opposed to like a round circle and yeah,
3: that makes no sense. It makes no, case no case sense whatsoever.
1: <laughs> absolutely. That's, that's
3: <laughs>
4: absolutely
1: weird. Well, this is more of actual grid it's a lot more expansive than obviously a TV yeah. studio with an eye in the middle of it guardians are wearing cowls and cloaks as opposed to the dead birds that they wear <laughs> on their head the decision that Turler has to make is much more detailed and highlights the confusion in his mind with the decision he's at to he has to make a man saw on the printed page is still a much better performance than what Lee John did on TV oh, uh,
3: not hard
1: it's not bloody hard though it's true you
3: pronounced it wrong there eh? Lee
1: John. Oh, Lee John from the band Imagination. Uh, of course, for a book this age are a couple of questionable descriptions, including this one. I particularly went, mm. he walked with the life power of a black athlete. Mm. Which you know, reading it back in the day wouldn't have made much of a uh, you raised, know, eyebrow. raised eyebrow, but now reading it, things that make you go hmm. apart from that though, um, the book itself is a really solid retelling of a great story, and it's nice to read a Doctor Who book with a different tone, as it were, sort of been, you know fairly Terence centric last yep. couple of times, which is perfectly fine.
2: This would be about the start of the year where Terence is really phasing out. Correct. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, they
1: started getting more original authors in, yep. so um, it was a nice change. And do yourself a favour and go and read it, as I'm sure you will be enlightened by it. Oh, yeah.
2: Well done.
3: So, I certainly can believe that the way the Eternal is portrayed would work better in literature than on TV. Because hmm. I, I think there are some inconsistencies in the show, which, you know, not a big deal, but aren't ideal. One of the things that really, I think, recommends the story to fans is those visuals and that mm. imagery of the ships in space all the
2: Yes, and the cliffhanger to part one where you yeah. do the cutaway and it's yeah. just like, oh,
3: wow. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Did you feel the novel captured that grand It did, actually, way? yes. Okay, it did, yeah. And, yeah. and
2: did it, uh, I can't remember reading it, so it would be a long time ago, at the end where they have the fight in the, in the grid room or whatever it is, how does that play out in
1: the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, basically, it's sort of it's it uh, for my recollection. It basically says yes. There's sort of Turlow sort of and, and Manslow are, are walking towards a doctor, and then then it sort of cuts away to the monitor where you see the bodies flying yeah. out. And it, so there's no fight as a word. No, works. that's the thing. It's, so it's, it's basically it still suggested that you know that is a doctor and, and potentially yeah. Turlo being thrown out of the okay. uh, of the grid room as opposed to what actually happened. Yep. Yeah. 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 yeah, really good book, really enjoyed it. And uh, I thought Barbara Clegg did a great job. It's a shame that didn't use her again.
3: It, it is,
1: yes. You know, I just don't get it. So anyway, but um, there, there you, go. you go. Thanks for that,
0: guys. Look, he's back on the scanner. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey nonsense. I'm jack of this time, Eddie, and the way it's just interfering with my life. But anywho, ah, there you are. It's time for a review. Of course, I could be reviewing my own book, The uh, Birds of Passage, uh, newly published by Candy Jar Books in the UK, uh, which is the new countermeasures novel uh, by me. But uh, there's something about, I don't know, probably wrong to call it nepotism. But anyway, we'll carry on with the actual review. Now, the reviews are something that 42 to Doomsday swore it would never do, of course. But with the good-looking one in charge uh, and me on the albeit temporary outs, the new regime has swept all that aside. Please expect a Patreon account before I return, no doubt. I am reviewing Kevin Clark's sole contribution to the target book range, which was, of course, Silver Nemesis. Sadly, Silver Nemesis is a resolutely average affair with one or two exceptions. It's a pity the book doesn't really take flight as all the elements are there, uh, much as they were with the TV show itself. Uh, One would have liked Clark to have taken a slightly darker turn in his depiction of de Flores and his henchman Karl. After all, they are followers of one Adolf Hitler. Instead, Clark depicts de Flores as something of a kindly old man obsessed with the old glories of the past, eager to bring them back to the modern world. Of course, in the real world, a de Flores would have been hauled before the courts and damned as a war criminal and worse which is something Doctor Who really can't do, I suppose. Clark has a lot of fun with the other double act in the story, that of Lady Painfor and her servant, Richard. Richard's terror at the modern world and his willingness to sell his soul back to God in exchange for getting back to his own time is often gently amusing in a sad sort of way. Painfor is as resolutely one note in the book as she is in the TV story. Although Clark makes decent use of one thing the novel has that the episodes themselves don't, a chance to get a glimpse of Painfor's motivations. I'm saying pain fors, but it may be pain fought anyway carry on she's a monster no doubt but you can't help but hoping that a woman raised as a third class citizen in her own time might just be able to get her comeuppance against all the men trying to do her over de flores the castrated cybermen and most of all the doctor clark does little for ace here there's very little of the slowly evolving young teen we see in dragonfire who eventually became the try it on with the fervent commie in curse of fenric she's basically in the story to feed lines to the doctor Though there are one or two flashes of insight we get into how Ace feels about the death and devastation all around her. The scene with the Doctor and Ace bumping into the Queen and getting accosted by security is surely the most amusing in the book. Clark gives the Cybermen, particularly the Leader and Lieutenant, some interesting lines depicting their relationship in interestingly antagonistic terms. The leader is something of a glory hound, eager to claim victory earlier than is warranted, while his lieutenant acts as something of a break on the leader's ambitions. Silver Nemesis, the television story, and Silver Nemesis, the book, are an example of the show not quite gelling all the elements into a compelling whole. But of the two, the novelisation for me is the better experience. Sure, some of the writing is a bit ordinary, and Clark misses a chance to deepen and broaden the script as the new adventures would do in short order. But overall, Silver Nemesis is a firm seven screaming degenerates out of ten from me oh no again the time eddy is taking me wibbly wobbly
1: and now it's a segment you've all been waiting for fan of the year awards and i should say the year awards that 2021 not 2022 because there's a whole slate of fan to get through this year however we're looking back in the previous year which I think Dave had his locked in in May. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll all come up with some. Uh, I'm assuming uh, contributions, which uh, hopefully don't include big finish all the time. Richard, I'm looking at you potentially. Yes, we'll see how we go. So, look, I'll start because I've got a few a few contributions to get through today. So, the first one is what I'm calling the this is uh, a long list. People. Oh yes. <laughs> well, we were locked at. Nothing better to do than obsess over. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> 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 and <fair laughs> wank. Now You See It Now You Don't award goes to uh, Big Finish, who quickly whipped the uh, tortured absent friend Avenger fight uh, with the 10th Doctor off the schedules as quickly as Johnny B did on the set of Doctor Who and Tortured. I did find the decision was a little bit hypocritical, though, as surely the executive producer of Big Finish, who I don't know if you know, Dave, actually voices the Daleks in the uh, new series. Every
3: single Dalek. It all sounds the same. All
1: the same. He would have, surely would have been exposed to some of JB's shenanigans, or at least heard about them. Obviously happy to hire him until the truth came out. Probably the truth called. was finally unveiled, as it were. So that's the, uh, now you see it, now you do award. Then they also get
3: rid of one of the masters? They cast their own master, and mm. he turned out to be problematic. Yes. Um, it's the guy who, he was in a couple of Abfabs, Constable Goody. In, oh, in, in the thin individual. blue line, oh, yes. Okay. James oh, wow. something. Okay. Yeah, apparently he's like the big Finnish master. And oh. apparently he's also now problematic. I, I haven't really followed him. What? Mm.
1: Okay, seemed
2: so inoffensive.
3: Because
1: they had a bolt.
2: They had a guy called Alex. Something. Alex McQueen. He was yes. from. He
1: was from. Um, he, he he's was, been a lot of stuff in between. Is he was nearly yeah, bad. I think. But he was uh, same master. He was good for a while. Yeah, but I think this guy was a pre. Pre
3: master. <laughs> <laughs> I get, I get. He's a fugitive the, the, the master. Time, who knows, master. Fair to say, none of us have listened to any of his
4: stories. No, either.
1: no, I don't we, think anybody we really followed that, and either. I don't think anybody can. Now they've probably been uh, deleted from the <laughs> canon, but uh, yeah. Anyway,
3: Dave, do you want to go with next? So my fanwank of the year award for 2021, I am giving to a subset of Twitter fans Ooh. who Ooh. I have kind of just lost the plot with over the course of this year, and it's. Not Twitter fans that I disagree with, it's not Twitter fans that have views that are different to mine, it is Twitter fans who cannot accept that the world out there has different views to them, and who insists that all the fandom should view Doctor Who through the prism of their own views and their own politics and their own values. Now, the reality is for a show like Doctor Who, if you were to survey the 3 to 4 million people who watch Doctor Who in the UK, you would find that... 30-40% of them vote Conservative, 30-40% of them vote Labour, a fair smattering in Scotland would vote for the SNP, some will vote Lib Dem, some will vote the Greens, some will probably vote for UKIP. That is the reality of television. If you were to survey Doctor Who fans in Australia, about 40% probably vote Liberal, about 40% probably vote Labour, the rest vote for the Greens, some vote for One Nation, some vote for Clive Palmer, some vote for all of those different parties. That is the reality of television. So the idea that some Twitter fans think that Doctor Who is a show exclusively for them and their political persuasions is, to me, absolutely baffling. Now, I'm very happy if people view the show through a different prism. I'm very happy if they take different things from it, if it forms a different part of their life. But I was absolutely just amazed that one of my favourite Jodie Whittaker stories, Kablam, was deemed to be utterly, utterly verboten by a section of Twitter fandom because it didn't smash the corporation quite enough. And you go through every story of the current season and there's like, well, this politics is wrong, that politics is wrong, it should have done this. And again, if you see Doctor Who as a crusader of progressive causes and the Time Lord version of Bernie Sanders, look, that's fine, (laughs) fill your boots. But don't expect everybody else to, because at the end of the day, this is a series about an alien being who travels in a police box through time and space fighting aliens. It's not real. Oh. It's, it's, it's fiction. It's just a fun piece of escapism. And again, if you take more from Doctor Who and you draw your values from Doctor Who, you are very welcome to do so, but don't impose them on everybody else. Don't lecture us on Twitter, <laughs> and for those of us who just want escapist television, let us have that, and if you are not, then you are fan-wanking, and you are getting my fan-wank award. Is that the modern equivalent
2: to Ace finding the, the no-coloured sign and, you know, not tearing it up as being a bad
3: thing? It, it would be like going onto Twitter and <laughs> saying, I can't believe you like remembrance of the Daleks because it wasn't progressive enough.
4: Jeez.
2: Well, I mean, let's face it. There are people out there who wanted of Wen Chuang, you know, struck from the box set, so...
3: And I will will, um, believe their credibility, and I will give them points for uh, their fight against racism the moment they also want a creature from the pit struck from the world (laughs) for the (laughs) anti-Semitism. Yes, it is, It is is the inconsistency of their values that I call out, and Mm. the inconsistency that makes me feel that for a number of the louder people on Twitter. It is performative rather than actually yes. insightful.
1: But that's the thing. I mean, you know, we're on obviously Twitter as well, and we get some messages. And, and here's one about Marco Polo. Potentially people wanting Remade with David Bradley. That They can Jesus. get accurate actors rather than the racist shite they did back then.
3: Again, if you feel that that is important to you, you are very welcome to hold those views. And I respect where you're coming from with those views. Don't expect us all to be able to do that. If we could enjoy talents of Wen Chiang, whilst acknowledging the faults... Exactly. That is, that is fine. Exactly. If we can enjoy the goodies whilst acknowledging and discussing at length the yeah. <laughs> the faults that the goodies made in some of their choices, we can do that. You don't want to watch it. I'm very comfortable with that. People yeah. have different sensibilities. And that is my point. We respect your point of view. Let us get on with our old, sad lives and just enjoy some oh you know, goodness. occasionally good escapist television. That is my slightly more serious fan wink. For this year very good
2: wow well I'm just going to say I
4: a big
2: yeah my list looks surprisingly feeble actually <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I bought that. no look I, I I had to yeah I was going to give big finish a sort of a drive-by so,
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I went through no please <laughs> do
1: go yeah, on
3: Cause, well because we're all there in the car we <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the wheel, like the pitmobile, the wheels are going up and down. We're playing the music, you know. <laughs> um,
2: and look, it, it is probably only just sneaks into last year, I hope. Um, it is the announcement they made about a, a third doctor adventure called oh, yes. <laughs> Annihilators. <latest. laughs> yes, now the cast list for this reads Tim Trelaw. Daisy Ashford, yes. now, I am aware that she is Caroline John's daughter, so please don't write in, but <laughs> she's not Caroline John. Because that makes so, it legitimate, right? Yeah, um, it's much like casting. I have met Sadie Slade, and I mean, she was only about nine years old, but she seemed like a nice kid, but... You know, she is not her mother. No, so but
1: I must admit, her vocal
2: performance is actually
1: not bad okay, compared. To, I know, you, I know, oh, I'm not. I oh, know oh, it's fine.
2: Stop, okay, keep going, keep I thought you were in the in the car with us, Mark. In the I car, am, I
1: am. But I'm also <laughs> tweeting out to people. <laughs>
2: <laughs> John Coleshaw as Lethbridge Stewart. Yes, and adding Michael Troughton as the second Doctor. Oh, yes. We're actually four down before we then get to Fraser <laughs> Hines.
1: <laughs> who is the only one who was actually there? <laughs> so basically, you're saying the, the person who's actually alive yes. uh, is, a, is a, bottom a, billing? A, a,
2: yes, it's fifth bill. Well, there's not. There's a, there's a chap called Mark Elstog below that, and it's not to diminish his performance in any way, who obviously plays some of the other characters. But, no. yes, the one person who is actually there um, is... the <laughs> is building. I'm sorry, I cannot get past it. When you're doing this sort of stuff, you're okay. recasting... Okay, you want a multi-doctor story, and neither of the doctors... <laughs> actual doctors are in it. You are really scraping the bottom of the barrel, I think. Having said that, you know... <laughs> What does Star Trek say? Infinite life and infinite diversity, or whatever it is. If that floats your boat, go for it. And I'm just a sad old fan, but I'm sorry, I did find that quite
1: uh, quite challenging to read. That sort of aligns with my second choice, as I call it the Continue to Violate the Trades Practices Act <laughs> award. Uh, again, goes to, as you said, uh, Richard, big finish. Let's at, just keep on coming. Uh, let's look at 2021's output, shall we?
3: Pass us a new Magazine.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the Avengers of the 11th and 12th Doctor, uh, voiced by Jacob Dubman, not the, you know, not the uh, real actors involved. The non-canon War Doctor has even been recast. The Diary of Riversong new recruit drama only has one person who's still alive, uh, even though her acting performance certainly isn't. And the third Doctor Adventures you just mentioned, Richard, y- you know, continues to have nobody alive uh, to recreate their characters, so yes. And I might actually sort of tag on to that as well, so this is called the uh, A New Body at Last Award goes uh surprisingly, to Big Finish. We um, really need those, like, Batman catches, like, BOW! <laughs> <bang. laughs> uh, yeah. Who, in an amazing reversing of the polarity flow, has recast a character from Doctor Who long before the original actor had shuffled off this mortal coil. So, basically, they recast Dodo yep. while Jackie Lane was alive, wow. and as soon as you heard the news, she died. <laughs> so, essentially... Uh, Fraser Hines, watch out, son. Get that second booster shot happening because he's just been recast as the second Doctor. So so
2: by that rationale, would recasting John Barrowman make Captain Jack acceptable again?
1: No, he wasn't acceptable even when John Barrowman was playing him, frankly. I never liked that character. (laughs) So
3: did you say they've recast the 11th Doctor?
1: 11 and 12 on Big Finish are played by Jacob Dudman and not by Matt Smith or Capaldi.
3: Now you see, although it's not for me... I can get by the idea that if you want to do Third Doctor Adventures, you recast the Third Doctor. Again, not for me, but I can, I can logically reach a point where I understand that decision. Matt Smith's not dead.
1: And his career certainly isn't as well. He's doing quite well. That, to me, is just rude. Well, I mean, let's face it. If they can
2: get Christopher Eccleston, surely they can get Matt Smith. You know, you've got a free day. You don't even have to learn the script. Just Just give us a day.
3: Just we'll book you into a booth, whichever yep. closest to you. Just read the lines. and. That's it. right. You
1: know, I don't think Capaldi's interested though, is he? Uh,
2: uh, no, well, I think he's also recently said he's not interested in doing a multi-doctor story or anything either. Yeah, I think I, he's I think. still very
1: burnt from the, yeah. his treatment of the, think so. the BBC treated him. Okay,
2: Richard, over to you. Um, I did have a second one, which um, was actually a merchandising choice. Sure. Oh, um, And I understand the logic behind how they got here. But um, there are two sets that came out recently. One from Earthshock. Oh, yes. And one from the Five Doctors.
1: Which I bought. Oh, uh, yes. No. Right. Um,
2: now, I understand that the logic is clearly you can do the Raston Warrior robot and then so you get the reuse out of the moulds you do the Correct. androids from Earthshock. Yes. yes. But seriously, Peter Davison in a box set with two black... Shakes. It's really, really pushing. Them. And I have noticed actually a lot of places have started marking them down. Oh, really? Yeah, I picked it up, and the only reason I picked it up is because it was like 50% off. (laughs) (laughs) However, Having said that, if you are a customiser, Mm. and hello Shane, if you're listening, um, you could actually probably use those robots to do the character of Shade from the comics. You could, yes. 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 Yes, if anyone felt in that way inclined.
3: And surely the androids from Cage of Androzani can only be just around the corner. Ah yes, That's oh exactly yes, it. yes, exactly. Very good. Yeah, all
1: they have to do is basically drill a hole and put yeah, like an pretty, iPhone, pretty much, in Just there. Yeah. the head sculpt. Yeah, and so you could do.
2: Um, I noticed, Dave, on your shelf you have the Patrick Trouton in his coat from the Abominable Snowman. Yes, I do so. I would imagine we're probably going to get another Five Doctors set yes. that has older Trouton in his coat, maybe a repaint of Pertwee and the Richard Hundel figure.
1: perhaps? thank you, Richard, for that merchandising uh, update Up <laughs> slash. Nomination. Before I get to the big one, I've actually got a DVD one. Uh, This is actually from a local uh, retailer here called JB Hi-Fi, and they put out a magazine uh, called Stack, basically reviews DVDs and music and everything like that. And they did an article on Web of Fear called uh, Spinning a New Web, which I thought was a very, very clever uh, play on words here. Look, the article is full of guff, but um, this is what caught my eye, talking about uh, Web of Fear Part 3. It's a dream of ours to work on this, he says. Well, the producer, was name was... And the BBC were wonderful. The feedback was supportive. And we were trusted and given free reign, which was great. It allowed us to be able to make directorial choices to get the momentum happening. Now, we've all seen it. I think feedback is what they probably needed more of, <laughs> frankly, than actually releasing it. Because really, I mean, it, looking at it again, I don't think it's fit for human consumption.
3: I have been very generous with some
1: of
2: these animations. Yeah.
3: That one was comfortably the worst.
2: I, I think with the animations in general, if you wanted to be cynical, um, it probably proves the adage that Doctor Who fans will buy any old tat. If you wanted to take a slightly different slant on it, it probably actually gives you a pretty fair indication of where the market is at. That, you know, they'll get the slew of um, purchases in the first two weeks, and then crickets yeah because the you know x number of thousand fans who are going to rush out and buy it straight away mm. will buy it and maybe a lot of people yeah, sure buy.
1: yeah and maybe they're buying it a lot of people buy it in their time I'm not going to buy it until the actual physical part um, three comes back maybe you know rescued from whatever warehouse maybe in wigan but um,
3: um, and yet they still don't do enough copies of the classic series blu-rays to satisfy All the demand in the UK. Or they could just buy an Australian copy because
1: there's plenty. Oh, there's plenty. Especially of uh, Season 24, which is uh, (laughs) plentiful and (laughs) uh, fairly cheap at the moment, isn't it, really? (laughs) It's very reasonable at the moment if anybody's looking for a copy of that. But look, let's crack on. The winner for my Fan Man of the Year Award for 2021 goes to... Chris Chibnall. He had the perfect opportunity to walk back the bile that was served up in timeless children. He could have had in the in those flux episodes that I can't remember. Uh, yeah. Basically, said had Tesla saying, "Yes, of course, it was all made up by the worst master since the last one." But no, <laughs> just like Boris uh, denying he had too many parties. Um, Chibbers has kept digging away and continue to turn the folklore of the greatest TV show ever made into something like one of those awful CW DC TV shows who, just like Doctor Who, shares a very small audience. Chris Chibnall, unfortunately, can't be with us to pick up his award. Basically, Australian (laughs) Border Security have uh, detained him for his crimes against (laughs) Fainwank. And plus those awful shirts he's been wearing. Yes, exactly. So we'll be posting the award to the closest doll office that I'm sure he'll be uh, lining up for as soon as his work on the series has finished. Let's see how much of that makes the final edit. (laughs) All of it. (laughs) It's his show. exactly.
2: What's that up on the scanner?
0: (laughs) I must say, wanking does seem to be clearing this time eddy up nicely. Must have something to do with the pipes. Oh, there you are. Welcome to my contribution for the Fan Wank of the Year Awards. Strap in, ladies. Look, it's clear that Big Finish is a long-standing and perennial winner of these awards. And rightfully so. As the organisation responsible for an absolute torrent of new material month in, month out, year in, year out, there will be times when the desire to create will outpace good sense and, frankly, taste. I don't condemn them. In fact, I congratulate them. Because if they weren't catering for every possible taste and combination of characters, they wouldn't have cornered the market in New Doctor Who, or fanwank of the Year Award wins, to be frank, and they wouldn't be the success that they are. But there does come a time when you have to just sit quietly in a corner and shake your head. You may even sob once or twice if you want when you hear announcements like that greeting the soon to be released the third doctor adventures the annihilators once you've got that mouthful out i invite you to look at the cast list and who is playing whom or who it probably should be who given the name of the show grammar nazis please write in once you've done that please calculate no need for deep thought to assist you on this one how many characters are actually played by the people who originally brought them to sparkling life on screen don't worry I've got time. It won't take you long. And the answer, folks, that's right. One. Tim Trelaw is the third Doctor. Daisy Ashford is Liz Shaw. John Colshaw is the Brigadier. Michael Troughton is the second Doctor. Fraser Hines, well, he is Jamie. That's your one. Please note, I don't condemn Big Finish for the actors jumping into these roles. I get it. There's a lot of love for these audios and Big Finish are catering to a market and their intent is pure, Well, pure-ish. I mean, don't you feel grubby every time you get paid? I know I do. Absolutely filthy. Anyway, you've got to admire the balls on Big Finish, from every angle I would suggest. They're not hiding what they're doing. With their licence extended out to 2030, the hard realities of the actuarial tables documenting life expectancies begin to assert themselves with all the implacability of gravity. Increasingly, we are going to see actors who appeared in televised Doctor Who drop off the perch. Content, however, must be created. New actors playing old roles will come to the fore more and more. For example, by 2030, it's pretty safe to say at least one, maybe two, if we're particularly unlucky, of the men who played the Doctor will have shuffled off their mortal coil. So, as a pointer to the future of audio Doctor Who, the Annihilators wins my vote for Fan Wank of the Year Award hands down. Does uh, anyone know a good obituary writer?
1: So, thank you everyone for joining us for this slightly delayed uh, Christmas party slash summer special now. Summer special, summer special that's yes. Good. Beautiful day outside, but we've uh, locked inside Camp David, get, making sure this is going to get out. Dave, Richard, thank you so much for uh, joining us, and I uh, always look forward to these. Hopefully, we'll be able to do it a few more times this year
3: we did say last year we were going to do a Christmas in July episode that's yes. true actually but that didn't... then we've
1: then we locked down
3: six or seven I
1: think yes. it was yeah and I think yeah, we've got a free one after that so it's uh, too hard to do it on Skype what the awful thing <laughs> they really were locked, locked down Dave again thank you for hosting Pleasure. Uh, and Camp David if you're interested which I'm sure you are the Doctor Who show in January uh, again features myself and Richard doing the podcast of Decision that was a lot of fun to do it's almost like we recorded them all on the
4: same day <laughs> it's <laughs> freaky isn't it really
1: so listen now for that one where you can really watch us squirm towards the end where we had so many classic Doctor Who scenarios that we were basically wade through. trying to yeah. wade through and it really caused a lot of confusion in my mind so that'll be out in January Dave last Sunday in January as, Excellent, always. as always so yes keep an eye out for that and Richard, baseball.
2: yes we are about to make our triumphant return to the airwaves <laughs> Uh, with Spaceball, the Black Seven podcast, our if glorious you... podcast continues to you... function. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> your leader will we'll see, see you through. <laughs> and now a walk in the Black Forest. Uh, we did have a couple of setbacks through COVID, but we are back. We are firing, and we are going to plow on to the end of the series.
3: Excellent. Looking forward to it. And then yes. what's after that? To the... do the build cast, one episode a week for the next thirty-three years. Wow.
2: <laughs> No, we we have actually got a couple of plans on the sort of uh, bubbling on the back of the stove for what to do once Blake 7 is done. If there's any fans of uh, It Ain't Half Hot Mum. Oh, (laughs) yeah.
1: (laughs) Love Thine Habercast. Well done, boys. (laughs) It'd be great to hear you guys back with Spacefall. So looking forward to you guys being back on the mics and, uh, yeah, back on the old uh, rodeo as well. Might be about to record one in just a moment. (laughs) That's surprising. Well, who knows, on the way, you <laughs> might take
2: a walk
1: in the black box. All right, so hopefully uh, we'll be able to drop Rob in at certain points of this conversation. Guys, thank you very much again. Listeners, we'll be back during the year to do uh, lots of Doctor Who stuff. Strap yourselves in. It should hopefully be a good year when what could possibly go wrong? Oh, Barry, hoist up your skirts and let's get let's go. <laughs> off we go. I'm poly omnicrom. I'm Pally omnicrom. All right, so I've been Mark. I'm Richard. And I'm Dave. Keep, Keep punching! punching. Omnicrom in the Bulls.
0: You've just listened to another episode of Forty Two to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at Forty Two to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at Facebook.com forward slash Forty Two to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at Forty Two to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, Forty Two to Doomsday where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.